<clears throat> Good morning, everybody, and welcome to today, March 6, 2021 edition of the Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation. <clears throat> uh, today's program is going to consist of a recognition of International Women's Day, which is coming up on March 8th. And then we'll move on to a reading of Du Bois's Russia and America. Joining me today, as always, uh, Dr. Montero, as well as uh, Meghna, Emily, Michelle, Samir, and Alice. Uh, so we're going to begin our program on our discussion of International Women's Day with a few brief remarks from some members of the Free School. Uh, first, I would like to uh, just ask Doc to say a few words about uh, briefly what international, why we are marking International Women's Day and, and some of its, his personal experiences with it. Uh, I can't say I go back to the origins of International Women's Day, uh, but the Socialist Party in New York um, organized, I think in 1909, a, uh, a celebration of women uh, working class women and women in the socialist movement. Uh, and then uh, in 1911, it, uh, it began an annual celebration uh, of March 8th as a day to recognize the struggle for women's equality. And then uh, in 1917 with the Russian, uh, the first Russian revolution and women getting the right to vote, March 8th became a holiday. And this continued throughout uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, and it's a big thing, a big holiday, an important holiday, International Women's Day. And of course the World Communist Movement and National Liberation Forces then took it up. And um, throughout Africa, throughout Asia, throughout uh, uh, South and uh, South America and the Caribbean, uh, uh, the world then began to celebrate International Women's Day. Now, of course, in this country, it comes in what we call Women's History Month, but it should be recognized that because the communist and the revolutionary forces celebrated this day, in the United States, the so-called Democrat, and of course, this is quote unquote, democratic forces cease to celebrate it because of anti-communism and anti-working class um, uh, ideology. Uh, however, my having been in the Communist Party, uh, as long as I could remember, every year there was some celebration of International uh, Women's Day in solidarity with women of this country, of the working class, and of women all over the world. And on many occasions, we'd have speakers uh, from the national liberation movements in Southern Africa, uh, women from the peace movement in this country, and so on. And many of the peace organizations like Women's Strike for Peace and Women's International League for Peace and Freedom uh, became a, a part 
of these annual celebrations of International Women's Day because they began to be associated with the struggle against nuclear weapons. Uh, so I'm very happy that the free school is doing our small part to draw attention to this very important day, which will be Tuesday officially, uh, and really to stand up for women and the rights of women in a time when women and their rights are under attack from many ideological quarters. Uh, so that's all I would say. Thanks, Doc. And I just say one last thing. We, you know, on International Women's Day, you know, my having my my working for the Communist Party, when when you came into the headquarters, people would say, "Happy International Women's Day!" Oh, Happy International Women's Day! And um, people would bring bouquets and roses and so on to to women, to our women comrades. Uh, and maybe chocolates or other things, just small tokens of appreciation. Well, happy International Women's Day in advance to everyone watching. And uh, we'll, we'll start with uh, some of the remarks from our members of the free school, starting with uh, Alice Lee. Thank you. Um, so I'll start. <laughs> Uh, in, com in commemorating International Women's Day, we remember Song Qingling, who is more famously known as Madame Sun Yat-sen. Among her many titles and activities, she was founder of the China Welfare Fund, chairperson of the Sino-Soviet Friendship Association, and vice chairwoman of the People's Republic of China. She had lived through a period of great transformation of Chinese society in the 20th century. From when China was engulfed by feudal imperialist forces and civil war to the beginning of the planning and rebuilding of a new China. During her travels through Russia, India, Burma, Pakistan, and Indonesia in the early 1950s, she had given many speeches on the need for the struggle for the liberation of the masses from colonialism and imperialism and towards friendship and unity. During many of her speeches, she had spoken to women, workers and students, the old and the young. In one of them, she said, the women of Asia have long fought side by side with their men in the armed campaigns for national independence against colonialism and imperialism, against the feudalism and compradorism of their own people. They have faced gunfire, the tortures of concentration camps, death by every conceivable means. Asia's women have joined and led strikes and demonstrations, have sacrificed their lives in armed revolt through incredible deeds of valor. The list of heroines of China, India, Vietnam, Korea, Indonesia, and other lands is one in which is one of which all womanhood can be proud, end quote. Through her life and her commitment to the people of China and of the world, we are able to understand that the role of the woman in is, is inextricably tied to the role of the revolutionary. She saw her freedom linked in a single garment to that of humanity. 
She was a woman who was guided by love for and hope in people. She knew that the masses of people longed for a world in which they could be rid of war, poverty, and racism, and instead flourish. For this reason, she spoke out against the United States for its involvement in the wars of Korea and Vietnam, the re, uh, rearmament of Japan, and the creation of unilateral treaties that kept other countries impoverished. However, Song Qingling knew that the enemy was a select group of warmongers, of warmongers representing the interests of big business rather than the American people. In her memo for the Peace Conference of the Asian and Pacific Regions, given in 1952, titled, For Peace in Asia, the Pacific Regions, and the World, she wrote, quote, all peace-loving people face a common enemy, the handful of willful men who profit from war. In the struggle against this enemy, for our existence and for peace, the peoples of Asia and the Pacific look upon the people of the United States as an ally, as a crucial ally. We hope they will join us in all their strength. We hope they will join us in working out the peace and then in making this world a place of fruitful labor and joy, a safe and sound place for their children and ours. We will, we we will grasp their hands in this greatest of crusades to make this our time one of the finest ages in the world's history." End quote. Song Qingling saw that her responsibility was towards the masses of the people, regardless of race, class, religion, or nation. She is an example for women and revolutionaries the world over who seek for peace. Thank you. Thank you, Alice. And uh, it's so important today on International Women's Day to recognize these uh, icons who we can look up to as role models for women and for all people today, and many of whom we hear very, very little about, like Sung Qingling. And uh, also because of their importance in the peace movement. And on that theme, let's, we'll hear a presentation from Meghna, who will also be speaking about the role of women in the uh, struggle for world peace. Yeah, uh, thank you for that, Alice. That was just really beautiful. And in fact, most of the points I have to make basically echo yours, um, but I guess told through the um, World Movement for Peace, uh, kind of led and crystallized by the World Peace Council, um, which was an organization that consolidated peace forces all over the world, um, trade unions, women's organizations, um, and basically built the movement, the people's movement against disarmament and nuclear weapons. Um, and so in 1975, the UN celebrated, um, they declared it International Women's Year um, based on the themes of equality, development and peace. And in commemoration of this, the World Peace Council also connected uh, the struggle for women's liberation to the struggle for national liberation and peace. Um, and so there was a really wonderful pamphlet we found in the archives of the World Peace Council. And from that pamphlet, I just wanted to read out a few quotes and make a few points that I pulled out, um, especially as they're relevant today. Um, so the first point is, you know, this idea, like Alice already said, you know, the real reason for women's oppression, it's not this struggle against men or 
you know, the quote unquote battle of the sexes, but it's the legacy of these oppressive systems of colonialism and imperialism. And so um, this quote, today, women are increasingly coming to understand the real reason behind their inferior status, to see that the struggle for their equality and full integration into social, political, and economic life is inextricably linked with their people's struggle for national independence, for democracy and social progress. They point the finger of accusation first and foremost at imperialism, which for long years has imposed hunger, poverty, and ignorance upon them. It has shown an inability to control disease and infant mortality and has brought early death to adults by exploiting their labor and stealing the wealth of their countries. And as we know, under imperialism, under neocolonialism today, women are working under horrific conditions as coolies, as peasants and slaves. Um, and the legacy of this colonial system is that whole populations of people were illiterate and impoverished, especially women, because whatever little was done was educating the men. Um, and we know that these systems use the excuse of saving women to colonize countries and are continuing to use that, uh, that excuse, but actually they're pushing women further into darkness and oppression. And even in imperialist countries, women do not receive equal pay, um, which means more profits for these monopolies, that small uh, ring of men that Alice was talking about. Um, and even less money spent on programs for uplift of women and children um, and more money spent on war. And this is especially horrible for non-white women who bear the double burden of being non-white and women. Um, and so this thing that the fight for women's equality is not a fight against men workers. It is a struggle which has to be fought together with the men against all kinds of exploitation and discrimination for democracy and social progress. It is wrong to look for explanations of oppression of millions of women in abstract statements such as eternal male supremacy or battle of the sexes. This is only one of the formulas used by enemies of women's equality to try to detract attention from the real problems faced by women today. I think this is something we definitely see uh, the, in popular discourse, the stuff about women or gender equality, they never mention war or imperialism or the concrete conditions facing working women. Um, the second point I got from this pamphlet is that, again, as Alice said, women played a very central role in the struggle for peace and freedom. And while under colonialism, they may have been in their homes, in the struggle for national liberation, they came out in full force to defend their families and their homeland. So um, this quote, it is obvious to liberate themselves, women must liberate their own countries. Their own development in a cultural and economic sense is inseparable from the achievement of deep-rooted social, political, and economic transformations of concern to the popular masses of the whole. This explains the significant role of women on equal terms with men in the struggle for national liberation. Women's equality and integration into the political, economic, and cultural life of society is not possible while their peoples are not free, while they are victims of aggression and war, while they suffer social injustice, colonialism, racism, and repression. The patriotic wars for national liberation and independence in which women participated courageously and as equals were a fight not only for peace and justice, 
but also to win a new position for women in society. The presence of women and the struggle for revolutionary change altered their relationship to men for whom they became companions in struggle. In overcoming enormous difficulties and dangers on the road to the liberation of their countries, women also have also been following the road to their own liberation from inequality, discrimination, and inferiority. So we know these heroic struggles of women conducting literacy campaigns all over the world, like in Somalia and Cuba, um, collecting signatures for the Stockholm Appeal. And, and again, as Alice mentioned, the, the fighting, the actual taking up arms and struggling for national liberation. And again, we don't know the names of these heroines as feminists, you know, and, and they, they don't consider themselves feminists, but I just want to say some of these names because I didn't know them um, until I read this pamphlet and until I came to the free school. Um, in Algeria, Hasiba Ben Bouali, uh, Fadila, Orida, Jarmila, um, you know, fighting the French. Uh, in Mozambique, Devlinda Rodriguez, Iron Koken, Suana Lutanu. Um, the great heroic struggle in Vietnam where women actually um, in the Battle of Hanoi, they actually repelled the enemy forces. They fought and won. Win Thi Din, she was the deputy commander of South Vietnam People's Liberation Forces. Um, heroines. Uh, and I noticed that in, in the communist countries, they call these women heroines. Um, heroines like Win Thi Swat, uh, Win Thi Han, Wu Thi Nam, Dao Thi Han. Um, you know, Soviet Union, South Africa, we know Winnie Mandela, Dorothy Nyembe, they took up leadership when the men were in prison. Under conditions of repression, they were raising their fists when everybody else was too scared to. And they kept the struggle alive and it was them who actually freed Nelson Mandela and political prisoners. Um, and then lastly, uh, you know, the fact that some of the first women heads of state of these liberated nations were champions for peace, non-alignment, and socialism. Um, Alice did a beautiful introduction to Sung Ching Ling, but also Indira Gandhi and Siri Mavo Badranaike of Sri Lanka. Uh, so I think that's interesting. You know, it's, it's I mean, women, were, it's also, they're not uh, great because they were women, but they were great because of what they stood for, their principles, which were in fact the principles of womanhood and motherhood. Um, in a civilization. And that's just the last point I wanted to bring up. And I think this is something very, um, uh, something that free school has really made me think about, which is the civilizational role of women. And this idea that women are civilizationally inclined towards peace, uh, because as mothers of civilization, they literally give life. Uh, so this is the last quote from the pamphlet I wanted to read. Women are particularly interested in disarmament for many reasons but principally because since they give life, they cannot accept the creation of the means of its destruction. They cannot accept that colossal sums of money are spent on both conventional and more sophisticated arms when poverty, disease, and illiteracy are still rife in the world. They understand better than anyone else that the arms race is a criminal waste of people's resources, directly affecting the daily lives of women and their families, and consequently women's status in society. Uh, so I think that is a really profound point, and that's why um, the struggle for women's liberation was so linked to the struggle for peace, because, I mean, it's, it's a very ancient principle, you know, the, the givers of life will protect life. 
they're also the preservers of life. They're the ones that make it flourish. Um, and so I, I just wanted to conclude with um, the ideas of Du Bois, who's linking, as Doc always talks about, the birth of civilization of Africa with the mother ideal, um, you know, and how in freeing women, in freeing Africa, you're also freeing women, which gave birth to this idea of, of, of women, um, women as the, the anchor of humanity. Um, so, yet the world must heed these daughters of sorrow from the primal black all mother of men down through the ghostly throng of mighty womanhood who walked in the mysterious dawn of Asia and Africa from Neith, the primal mother of all whose feet rest on hell and whose almighty hands uphold the heavens. All religion from beauty to beast lies on her eager breasts. Her body bears the stars while her shoulders are necklaced by the dragon. From black neath down to the starred Ethiop queen who strove to set her beauty's praise above the sea nymphs through dusky Cleopatra's, dark Candace's, and darker, fiercer Zingas to our own day and our own land in gentle Phyllis, Harriet, the crude Moses, the Sibyl, Sojourner Truth, and the martyr Louis de Morty. The father in his worship is Asia. Europe is the precocious, self-centered, forward-striving child, but the land of the mother is and was Africa. In the subtle and mysterious way, despite her curious history, her slavery, her polygamy and toil, the spell of the African mother pervades her land. Isis, the mother, is still titular goddess in thought, if not in name, of the dark continent. Nor does this all seem to be solely a survival of the historic matriarchate through which all nations pass. It appears to be more than this, as if the great black race in passing up the steps of human culture gave the world, not only the Iron Age, the cultivation of soil, the domestication of animals, but also in peculiar emphasis, the mother idea. And I love the way he says that it's a contra, it's not that, oh, society had to go through matriarchy to get through civilization, which is the Western uh, historiography, but actually matriarchy is civilization. I mean, it's what gave birth to civilization. Um, and to free civilization, we have to free women. Uh, we have to free Africa. Um, so I just wanted to conclude with that. And also I wanted to um, just uh, say thank you and pay tribute to the women in free school who have just been very inspiring, uh, Yvonne and Catherine especially. So thank you to those women. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing all that amazing history. There's a lot to, talk, to discuss about it, but I think we'll save it until we hear uh, Emily's presentation. Um, so I'd like to ask Emily to say a few words <clears throat> it's, it's hard to follow Magna um, and also I just want to also pay tribute to women like Magna who I really look up to. Um, I wanted to talk about, well I wanted to celebrate International Women's Day by talking about Coretta Scott King in particular who I didn't realize was part of Women Will Strike. Um, which Doc, you mentioned, and she was part of so many different peace missions as well, and a huge proponent for disarmament. Um, and the way you laid that out, Magna, about how disarmament is an issue natural to women um, was so beautiful and also something I began to think about in relation to Coretta. But the reason why I wanted to talk about 
Coretta Scott King is because I feel she is a role model of courage, dignity, partnership and love. And above all, she carried a relentless commitment to the poor. Um, and she's a revolutionary woman I look up to very much. Um, and there are a few things I wanted to talk about, but I wanted to start with her saying that her journey began with wanting to find a solution to social justice, just like her husband, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, but then she came to understand her purpose as elevating the entire nation and mankind toward what they called the beloved community. In her autobiography, Coretta, My Life, My Love, My Legacy, she called this God's work. And she said, quote, my life careened down roads I had never imagined traveling. I took on tasks requiring skills and wisdom I didn't have until circumstances demanded them. Pain is the price some people have to pay and death can be a redeeming voice. It can promote change and advance the work of God's kingdom. I came to understand all this in the early days of the Montgomery movement and the understanding I found then has never left me. I had a divine calling on my life a charge, a challenge to serve not just Black people, but all oppressed humankind. That calling will be with me to the very end." End quote. And over her lifetime, she emphasized two injustices that concerned her the most. And she, she said it was poverty and world peace. Um, and I wanted to start by noting that I feel she was concerned with the poor of the world. Um, and in her autobiography, she talked a lot about how she saw herself in the struggle for Black Americans um, in the struggle against apartheid in South Africa, and specifically also the Vietnamese. Um, and I feel her moral commitment to peace caused her to be, she said she was concerned with the Vietnam War since the 50s and even early 60s. And it was something that she thought a lot about even throughout the civil rights movement. After King's assassination, her first speech was against the Vietnam War. And despite the tragedy she recently endured, she spoke with strength and conviction about how racism and poverty at home and militarism abroad are two sides of the same coin. And thus her duty and the movement's duty was to continue King's legacy, to struggle for peace and struggle against the violence of poverty, unemployment and racism at home. And I think in some ways her understanding of the struggle for peace is she understands the struggle for peace as a strong stand against global white supremacy. Um, but the thing that I think I've recently discovered the most is the way she was always committed for her, her a big concern of hers was poverty. Um, and some of I want to read some quotes she had about it because it was really moving. She talks about her from her own roots in rural Marion, Alabama, where she picked cotton to pay for her primary education, helped her grandparents farm and milk the cows, and she walked three miles to school because only white children rode the school bus. She always deeply empathized with the poor. And in her own words, when she said the poor, she meant anyone from Blacks to Hispanics to Appalachian whites. So after her husband was assassinated, she courageously continued his vision for genuine equality in which there are not two Americas, one which is overflowing with the milk of prosperity and the honey of opportunity, with the other an island, an island of millions in poverty. At the end of his life, Martin Luther King Jr. gave the speech, The Other America, in which he said the next step of the civil rights movement is the most difficult step 
of achieving genuine equality, which was not just civil rights in the bill, but an elimination of poverty and a fight for good jobs that, en that enabled the economic self-determination of the poor. Um, he said, quote, in this America, people are poor by the millions. They find themselves perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. In a sense, the greatest tragedy of this other America is what it does to little children. Little children in this other America are forced to grow up with clouds and inferiority forming every day in their little mental skies. As we look at this other America, we see it as an arena of blasted hopes and shattered dreams. Many people of various backgrounds live in this other America. Some are Mexican Americans, some are Puerto Ricans, some are Indians, some happen to be from other groups. Millions of them are Appalachian whites, but probably the largest group in this other America in proportion to its size in the population is the American Negro, end quote. Um, and I think Coretta Scott King, with her strength and her lifelong dedication to the poor and her commitment to justice, later on after in the 70s, she became a leader of pushing for a federal bill for full employment, a fight that's often forgotten. Um, and even in the speech that I mentioned earlier that she gave just weeks after her husband's assassination at a rally against the Vietnam War, she expressed a concern about the impact on pover of poverty on mothers who she identified as at the forefront of the world's struggle for peace and brotherhood. She specifically said that she was worried that mothers in poverty would have to spend more time away from home trying to make ends meet and how, and she was worried about how that would affect children. Um, and I think this is really, it's an important fight because I think today in a time when so many slogans, which people are saying are the slogans of the new mass movements today, that the slogans coming from the so-called left and progressive forces today are things like defund the police and abolish this and that. Coretta Scott King was leading a struggle to solve the issue of poverty um, and provide every American with a good job to have a decent chance at life. And in many ways, her fight was far from things like defund the police. Her slogan instead was something more similar to jobs with peace. Um, and the last thing I wanted to talk about was just that Something that really moved me about Coretta Scott King is how she exemplifies such a strong sense of moral courage and a deep commitment to the people. Um, she and Martin Luther King Jr. always talked about how they would go where the people were. So when she was in college and she was studying voice to become a singer in Boston, um, she and King made the decision to actually go south, even though in the north they talked about how in the north there's a lot more opportunities for singing and same with King, there would be other opportunities for him in the North. Um, but she was willing to make the personal sacrifice to go to the South because that's where they saw the people were there. Um, and they understood that the, the most extreme examples of injustice and the worst of Jim Crow racism were in the South. And that's where the struggle for justice would be. And that's where they wanted to go. Um, and I think that's something going where the people are and making and having carrying that sense of sacrifice and selflessness for the movement is something that I admire really deeply. Um, so to conclude, I think Coretta Scott King is an example of a revolutionary woman. I think she's a leader in moral courage, standing against white supremacy and for peace and defending the poor. I think she carried herself with such quiet dignity and palpable defiance to white supremacy and with immense strength in the face of real violence. 
She emulated what her father said, quote, if you look a white man straight in the eyes, he can't harm you. As well as another phrase from her father who had his house that he hand built burned to the ground, his sawmill burned down and only to turn right around and start his own grocery store in defiance. And I love this phrase from her father, quote, we don't have time to cry. <laughs> and then lastly, I just wanted to repeat what I said earlier that she always knew she had to be close to the people. And this is one last quote from her autobiography, quote, Martin and I felt a similar pull, a similar pressure from God. I was married to Martin, but I was even more married to the movement and its mission of helping to create a beloved community of compassion, justice, and nonviolence, end quote. And I know I said that was my last quote, but I actually have one last quote to commemorate International Women's Day, um, which is a quote from another woman I really look up to, Diane Nash, also part of the civil rights movement. Quote, another important element in being successful at eliminating, eliminating segregation was changing ourselves. We changed ourselves into people who could not be segregated. And once you change yourself, the world has to fit up against the new you, end quote. And I think that's just a beautiful quote to also celebrate not just revolutionary woman, but what it means to be revolutionary. Just that thing of that you change yourself to become someone who cannot be segregated. Um, and I'm just really grateful for us to even be celebrating, you know, these short remarks on revolutionary women and the role women have played in the struggle for peace and justice across the whole world. People from Sun Ching Ling to Coretta Scott King, um, to the woman of the anti-colonial struggle, but then even here to the free school, the woman of the free school. Um, and I'm just so proud to call myself a woman of the free school um, and continue the struggle for peace. Thank you uh, so much uh, to Emily and all the young women comrades of the free school for those beautiful uplifting uh, presentations. And uh, I think there's there's some stuff for us to discuss is so so such important history. And it really the, the, the first thing that comes to mind to me is we often talk about this at the free school about how we have to go in a lot of ways we have to go backwards into history and understand it in order to really move forward. Whereas much of the left and activist discourse is about just now and the history is not important. But when you talk about International Women's Day and you talk about the struggle of women, I mean, these three presentations, the history in them is so important. Sung Ching Ling, Coretta Scott King, and then the, the broad uh, world peace movement. Uh, so much ideological work was done and political work to identify what are the problems facing the women of the world and who is the real enemy. And they all came up with the answer. It's this ruling elite and warmongering class, which is really the enemy of men and women. And as you all were saying, that is so different from what we hear now. What goes for quote unquote women's activism or feminism is more focused on the violence of language and very little focus on the violence of poverty or war. And I think that's something very important. And um, with Meghna's presentation in particular, it made me think of a lot of things because 
I had done a little bit of research about International Women's Year, which, as she was saying, was held in 1975. And it was a very, I think, also a very important case study that everyone should, should uh, learn about, that in the United Nations, there's this great debate and a majority of countries actually said that we need to sell it, we need to commemorate the year of women. The United Nations as an institution said this is something very important to educate people about. Um, and there was an event held in uh, Mexico City, which was the international, I think it was called International Conference on Women. But then there also you started to see this ideological uh, contradictions, ideological debate about what will this year mean? What will it be focused on? And one image in particular, which is very interesting and happened at that conference, which I think is very illustrative, is there was one of these uh, elite white uh, women activists from uh, the United States, I'm forgetting exactly what her name was, who was speaking and she was saying like, we have to confront men, men are stopping us, men, we have to, you know, of going on kind of this position criticizing men. And then there was a third world woman activist from I think Bolivia and she came and she said, how, how can you, you might be talking about your men, but you don't know about our men. She said, my husband is a minor. He's underground 10 plus hours a day and he comes home coughing blood. How can I attack him? We're in the same uh, struggle. And uh, similarly, the as Megna was reading, the World Peace Council had this great conference on, uh, on, on women and world peace and the importance of disarmament and also tying in the struggle of the, the uh, broader uh, third world, the struggle for a new international economic order and other things, uh, the struggle against poverty, the struggle against racism. And very importantly, uh, this point, which also we never hear, the struggle for na national self-determination, right. uh, all these anti-colonial movements putting women at the forefront. In fact, at that international Women's Year, uh, the, the International Conference on Women in Mexico City, many pretty much every country sent a delegation. And many countries like Vietnam, Bangladesh, Algeria, they sent women who had been involved in their freedom struggle, who had been at the forefront as their representatives. Uh, so, so all of that is very important. And then also organizations like the Women's International Democratic Federation, which uh, were similarly representing women of the socialist uh, countries and parties uh, throughout the world. So all, all those legacies are, are very, very important. Um, and to read also a few comments that we're getting. Uh, uh, An writes, Ho Chi Minh greatly respected and revered the women comrades of the Vietnamese revolutionary movements. He gave the title of long haired fighters to the women that bravely took up arms against France and the United States. Yvonne King writes, thank you to all of the women in free school, those young and old. We will continue to learn from one another. And Nellie Bailey writes, good morning, good folks, not afraid of truth. The heroic armed defense of Soviet women against the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. Women were snipers, fighter pilots, and frontline soldiers and nurses. Rarely are women recognized for their roles for world peace by defeating fascism. And Anantha writes, good morning, everyone. Happy International Women's Day. Thank you for these wonderful presentations. Magna's point about the struggle for socialism and for women's liberation made me think about how when the Soviet Union fell, two of the most drastic changes in Russian society was the increase in alcoholism among the men and the restarting of prostitution among women. And uh, yeah, Nantha and Nelly Bailey's comments also, I mean, emphasize the importance of uh, socialism 
for women, the, the kind of great advances made by women in these socialist societies like the Soviet Union and Vietnam and, and others, uh, which is something which we don't hear about because of the anti-communism. Yeah, actually something my mom, so my mom, she was born in, I think the late 1950s and actually maybe it's 40s, I don't know, 50s. And she, she grew up in China during the Cultural Revolution. And despite some of what she said, you know, some of her, um, some of what she identifies as the negatives, she, growing up, she never used to comment on the way I looked. And compared to all of my classmates, when I would go visit their homes, their moms would make these little remarks about the way they looked. And I used to ask my mom, like, why did you dress me so poorly? <laughs> so poorly or not care about the way I looked or would forget to brush my hair and all of that. And my mom was just, she looked a little stunned. And she said, you know, now I think about it, I think it's because growing up in China, none of the women were raised to care about how they looked. We were taught like be a productive force of society. Like your job as a woman is to be a strong productive force to help the country, to build the country, be strong and I think I really, it was just really funny that she didn't even realize that that was the way she was raised in this communist country. Um, and some of those values she imbibed in me, I didn't even realize it. Yeah, um, this thing about men not being the enemy also, I feel is so important because now, I mean, everybody's everybody's enemy now in the age of cancel culture and identity <laughs> politics. Uh, it's, it's a war of all against all. But um, I really liked what Emily said from Kreda's autobiography about uh, the partnership in love with men. And um, yeah, I just think that's a really important point. Um, I mean, just this point about unity and you know, you can recognize the specific, uh, you know, conditions facing different kinds of human beings if you're united in the struggle for unity. And also, Doc, the anecdote you said about how uh, the Communist Party celebrated women, um, I mean, that was just really beautiful. And it's just, it's just, I mean, that's what the beloved community should be like, you know, um, yeah, yeah. You know, in our discussion, which we're going to uh, return to, of Du Bois's manuscript, Russia and America, you know, you recall that a, a big part of what he talks about is the, what he calls the dictatorship of the proletariat. And he says the success of Russia will depend upon whether or not the workers remain as the central pillar of the state. And uh, this idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat uh, became a universal political concept, including in Africa. And one of my favorite theorists is a writer and thinker that is hardly known in this country and probably not widely known in Africa. And his name was Marion Nguabe. And he was the head of state of the People's Republic of the Congo. And uh, he had this theory of the crucial triad 
i.e. the foundation of, of people's power in the Congo. And um, uh, at the core of it was the state, the um, party, the revolutionary party, and the broad constellation of uh, people's organizations, uh, such as the organization of youth, where youth were organized, politically educated, and given the opportunity to make their special and unique contribution to society. The organization of workers, the trade unions, and then uh, in this mixed, and it was inevitable throughout the, um, the developing world. I don't care whether you were in Cuba or, or Afghanistan before the, you know, the overthrowing of the socialist government or in Vietnam, women's organizations. They were everywhere, uh, unlike the United States where women's organizations had no support uh, in, uh, from the government or anywhere else and they were barely making it. And then you go to a socialist country and women's organizations. And this was throughout Africa in every revolutionary movement, there was a women's section. And, and people say, well, oh, you segregating women. No, they were not segregating women. It was a uh, institutionalization of the, first of all, of women's roles in the revolution and in the revolutionary party and to hold accountable the whole party to never forget about the special role of women. And, um, and so contrary, and I'll end here, contrary to a lot of what we, you know, are taught to believe in these days in this country, the rest of humanity does not view women the way women and gender is viewed in this society or in the West. Um, they do not view families the way they are viewed in this country. And so um, I know, I think Joe mentioned going back, but I would say also going back to the historical foundations of the women's movement, but also uh, we have to look at more advanced societies like socialist societies in Asia and Africa. We have to think about the experiences of the People's Republic of the Congo, of thinkers like Marion Nguabe. Um, and um, yeah, that's, that's all I wanted to say. Uh, I think this is an important point, as you were saying in that triangle, this role of the, you know, I guess you could say civil society or popular organizations, um, as they often call them, because uh, in all the American academic studies of these societies, these popular organizations are pretty much dismissed as, you know, bureaucratic appendages of the state under the dictatorship of, of, of a, you know, ruling class of the of the ruling party in some ways but uh it's a very important experiment in democracy i think and how to bring in 
popular input, popular perspectives, and also how to mobilize large sections of the population. As you mentioned, uh, pretty much every one of these social societies had some kind of women's front. And I mean, you mentioned Congo, we could also look at China, which I think still has it, North Korea, Cuba still has Cuban Federation of Women, yes. which are, were very important organizations and even did work internationally, I think. And in addition, uh, and very interestingly, they all, a lot of them also had peace organizations, which were connected to similarly popular organizations connected to the government, which was the World Peace Council was kind of a federation of a lot of these groups. And uh, whether it's the peace groups or the women's groups, they're often dismissed as unimportant or, you know, bureaucratically controlled. But uh, if you, I was looking at some of the history, again, in the 70s, when the World Peace Council visit, had a delegation visiting the United States, and they had a number of men and women from the third world, second world, and first world. Uh, and one of them was also from the US was uh, Reverend uh, Ralph Abernathy. And in his speech, he said that the, the US should have a national peace organization budgeted by the government, because he was saying it's a good thing that these countries emphasize having peace organizations. He wasn't saying that it's something, you know, cynically controlled by the state. And I think the same goes for women's organizations and youth organizations and uh, you know, various other kinds of, obviously the unions and working class organizations. Mm -hmm. Those are peasant organizations. Yes. All of those are very, something we have to take very seriously. I mean, that is setting us up also for our reading of Russia and America and the differences between the, the bourgeois state and the, yes. the proletarian state. And uh, also this point that we also have to uh, revive this idea of seeing the women's question and women as linked to the proletariat, women as yes. part of the proletariat. In many <laughs> cases, even, even a bigger part, a more important part of the proletariat than male workers. And that's certainly what Du Bois was also talking about in uh, Black Reconstruction about the black worker who's trying to apply, apply it broadly. Um, so the, those I think are also ideas we have to revive. I mean, from what you just said, I was also thinking um, these mass organizations, but the um, also the component of education, you know, it wasn't just about identity um, or like we're just going to come together around a shared identity, but it was around like what, like why, what is the reason for this oppression and about imperialism and the way it works and how to fight it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's also an important part of education. Uh, that's also an important part of uh, democracy, like we're, we'll, we will talk about with Russia and America, the role of education and all this and educating people, helping them understand. Um, yeah. And you know, um, the women's organizations, I know uh, at times there would be delegations of women from the Palestinian women's organization linked to the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organizations. And these would be ways of expanding and broadening people-to-people -people contact contacts. That these were that peace was not just a government concern, but it was a human concern of people, of working people, of women. And um, I, I uh, the, the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, contrary to the smear campaign of the West against against women's and youth and children's organizations in socialist countries, these were ways of overcoming the, um, 
the colonialists and even previous oppressive systems that marginalized women, that kept women in the home. These uh, organizations encourage women to come into the streets, to be public, to have a public presence. And out of these women's organizations, you had the political development of women who previously or under other circumstances would be marginal, would have no role. You know, like in the United States, you take it today. When you talk about gender, you're really talking about a discussion uh, animated by, directed by, conceptualized by elite, highly educated women. You seldom see a working class and you never see a poor woman as a part of, of this. But in, I could say in Africa, when I, would, when I was there in various countries, the women's organization brought the peasant women, the working class women to the forefront and it, it was encouraged. And you would see the, um, uh, the blossoming of women who previously were in the home. And then I guess the last thing, you know, women as heroes of socialist labor. These are, I think, you know, we don't, because we don't respect labor in this country, there's no such thing as a hero of labor. But the honor of being a hero of socialist labor was like being a four-star general in the US Army. It was one of the greatest honors in socialist society. And um, so women advance very far in socialist countries. The undermining and collapse of the Soviet Union, the counter-revolution led by people like Mikhail Gorbachev, and you know, like they say, we gotta put some respect on his name or disrespect on his name because he was at the, at the uh, forefront of this, which, destroyed the Soviet Union, destroyed the women's organization, destroyed the central role of labor. But as labor rose, women rose. And in those first uh, celebrations of International uh, Women's Day, uh, not only were there the, the, the women of the Socialist Party, but there were women of the IWW, the International Workers of the World, such women, as Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, Mother Bloor, uh, uh, some other mothers that I forget the names, but these were mothers of the labor, not as you might, mothers of the labor movement. And they got those names. Um, uh, and of course, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, uh, she rose to the leader, into the leadership of the Communist Party and she and Claudia Jones, were in prison together in uh, Alderson Prison in West Virginia, the same prison where Billie Holiday was imprisoned. Uh, so yeah, that's just a small part of this. Uh, well, before we, we get into also uh, Russia and America, I'd like to ask Michelle or Samir to say a little bit about what they're thinking. 
Yeah, I can say a little bit. I mean, I was so moved by the presentations that everyone gave and the history that was illustrated. And I was thinking about how, you know, the free school has been so valuable um, in part because it allowed me to understand this concept of revolutionary womanhood and how distinct that is from um, bourgeois womanhood, which is what I had come across in activism, in academia, where um, to become a woman and to take pride in a woman through this third wave feminism, I suppose, is to see yourself as above or as separate from the struggle of common people. And, um, and this is something that I felt very intuitively because I never felt very connected to this idea of feminism or this, this, um, this like singular fixation on what it meant to be a woman and therefore how one was oppressed and, um, and uh, you know, made a victim. And I think, um, yeah, actually it makes me think about what I think Doc or Jahan, you had brought up about how womanhood is conceived of very differently um, among the working masses of the world and um, civilizationally as well, where the woman is sacred because she nurtures something so essential in other human beings. Like she is able to cultivate and really nourish um, life, you know, in people of all ages. And even if you just travel, you know, to, I, I know like when I've traveled to Asia, um, there's a there's a nurturing spirit, you know, in the working woman of the world that touches you. And um, I don't know, it just like extends so deeply to your soul. And yeah, I mean, because of experiences like that, but, the, but then also just the way I thought, I never felt so connected to examining what it meant to be a woman. I was kind of disinterested in it. I was more interested in the question of, you know, what it means to become a human being, which I think we found in Grace Lee Boggs, James Baldwin, um, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, but now I feel like I'm coming a little bit more full circle as we evaluate what it means to be a revolutionary woman. And um, yeah, how it's connected to the struggle for labor, the dignity of labor, peace, class, you know, understanding empire. And um, it's just a brilliant thing. And um, yeah, I, I, I wanted to thank all of you for that. Um, yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's invaluable. Yeah, to echo Michelle, it's pretty great that the free school has so many young women. Uh, and I think it's always had more young women than young men uh, for whatever reason. I think Jahan and I have, and Brandon have been the three young men who continue to show up, but then there's rest young women. Um, and then during Meghna's presentation, I was thinking about uh, women fighting and women taking up arms. And uh, it reminded me of the way that Kurdish women were portrayed during their civil war as heroic fighters. And then you'd have a picture of a 16 year old girl with a gun or something like that. And I thought it was very terrible uh, the way that um, child soldiers were portrayed uh, because they were women. And uh, it's just so disconnected to the reality how a civil war can affect a young woman's education for the rest of her life. Um, and it was revealing about the way that the war was portrayed, that this is a war about empowering women because they're rebel women, uh, you know, and women-led squads shooting people up, but it was not a positive thing material, uh, you know, materially for women in that country. Um, I mean, we have to be really conscious of the lens through which 
the West views womanhood uh, because of you know, what was said earlier about women having um, a different role in other civilizations in other countries and the view of women being different um, and nothing else can tie it together about than focusing the role of labor and women together. Yes, Amir, and just the sexualization of women in the West, like no other country are women and children yes. sexualized, made into sex objects. I mean, this is just, it goes against civilization because this is just a, like, I mean, all the spiritual traditions say like, no, like look at something higher, look at humanity, look at, um, you know, have responsibility, but it's just, it's really horrible. Um, and even something like political, supposedly like taking up, they'll make it into a sexy thing. Or even the way Panther women were shown in the Judas and the Black Messiah, they're very sexy. And it was all about their image and the novelty of a woman black. It wasn't about what was her ideology? What was her leadership? You know, what did she learn? What did she have to do and confront? Um, yeah, and like uh, Michelle was saying, around the world, if you go and meet women, there's not this obsession with uh, sex. And um, and also, this is one thing that's really amazing about Nation of Islam women is the modesty that they champion. And um, yeah, and as a as a as a um, as a uh, defiance against the sexualization of women in the West, especially Black women. Yeah, that reminds me of the uh, Israeli Defense Force, women in the IDF and how they're sexualized, or, you know, Gal Gadot, or there's a supermodel who's in the IDF, um, or just news articles of, oh, this is what uh, a sexy woman, she's a soldier. Um, it's terrible. Yeah, what yeah. you guys no, what you guys are saying makes me think about how there is that genuine sentiment beneath so much feminism where women want to restore a sense of dignity for themselves. But the problem is they try to do it by assimilation into bourgeois politics. When, you know, the actual path that people like Coretta Scott King took, Sung Ching Ling took, um, was to define themselves by revolutionary principles and struggle and to find freedom and dignity in that. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to bring up was uh, this, our conversation also makes me think about um, the discussion between James Baldwin and Audre Lorde, where Audre Lorde is saying like, I'm, I'm so distinct because I'm a black woman, you know, um, black men have oppressed me, et cetera. But then there's one line where I think Baldwin says like, yes, I'm a man, you're a woman, but it's our responsibility to endlessly redefine one another. And that's what our relationship to each other is to be. Um, yeah, and I think we really proceed in that spirit as, as women and men of the free school. And I think in that conversation, Baldwin also says, but what about the child? Um, and it's the same thing Coretta, Coretta Scott King, Martin Luther King Jr. both, like Martin Luther King Jr. in that um, speech, The Other America, at the end he asks, okay, but what about what what about children like if you care about the child then the real war that needs to be waged is against poverty um against racism think about what that does to the child and then for Coretta Scott King I think I feel like sometimes people try to portray her as simply a wife or like a mother but in the very bourgeois sense um but then even in that speech where she's like she's taking a stand against the Vietnam War so strongly. There's a strong sense of her as a woman, 
a mother, a wife, where she's saying like, my commitment as a mother is to the children of the world, the poor children of the world. Like what will happen to the mothers in poverty, not just in America, but in Vietnam, what will happen to the children? Um, it's a much different way of viewing just women and their role um, or even the definition of a wife. Like I feel like feminists are like, oh, free the woman from the kitchen. But for Coretta Scott King, she said, it's like, like she said, she was married to the movement. You know, she made the sacrifice to go south because she wanted to be married to the movement. Um, and like, that's the beauty of her partnership with Martin Luther King Jr. too. They're both married to each other, but married to the movement. Um, it's not as individualistic as in the West, people are obsessed with the individual, but it's not like that. Uh, the points uh, Samir was making also, I think, uh, were important because uh, as, as he was saying about the way the media has portrayed uh, women rebels in Syria and other places, it's been perpetuating this kind of colonial narrative, this narrative that goes back to colonialism, because if you look at uh, almost every example of colonialism, uh, the Western power in that society, whether it was the British, French, or otherwise, often they justified their colonial rule on the basis that the despotic society, which they were ruling, that it, it had mistreated its women or oppressed its women, and that the co colonizers were bringing enlightenment regarding the women's question. And a lot of that discourse still basically is there in uh, feminism as it's taught in the West and particularly the past uh, 20 some years of the what's so-called global war on terror, which the United States has waged on Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and a number of other countries, predominantly Muslim countries. That's basically been the same argument. Like, why are we in Afghanistan to save Afghan women? Why are we in Iraq to save Afghan uh, Iraqi women? And, um, but it runs really counter to history because in all these societies, whenever they've had the possibility of self-determination and anti-colonial and progressive forces have been in the leadership, they've made a lot of progress in resolving uh, different issues with women and, and putting women in, in uh, important positions and so on. And that's really what they need. Not They need the opportunity for self-determination, not for Western armies to be there at gunpoint and uh, try to resolve their contradictions, which is really just a justification for military occupation and neocolonialism. And uh, it's going to, it's an interesting question. Are they going to perpetuate the same narrative against China and Russia now that they've been identified as the new enemies of the United States? I think it might be difficult with China in particular because they've made a lot of progress uh, against neocolonialism, and which by basically inherently means fighting against neocolonialism means the promotion of, of women's equality and um, liberation of women. So it's important to keep in mind whenever we see in the Western media anything about women's oppression and, and other societies, uh, because of course they'll never talk about war or neocolonialism or uh, how much that is, how, how badly that affects women and uh, particularly all the women that have died in these wars waged in the past 20 years, which are still going on, the endless wars and occupations um, in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places. You know, and um... You know, this question that we're talking about, and I know we have to get on to other things, but this is a principal foundation of the ideological struggle in our country at this time. Not in the ways that it was, let us say, a hundred years or more, where 
just to raise the prospect of women's equality was a revolutionary uh, program. But today, the ruling class has presented itself as being on the side of women in this society and around the world. You take a person like Samantha Powers, a warmonger, a scumbag of the highest order, who says that war in Iraq, in Libya, in Syria and other places is to liberate women. Well, look at the status of women before the US intervention in Iraq. The Iraqi women were among the most highly educated as a group, not just in the Arab world, but in the quote, third world, approaching levels in advanced countries. Uh, the same in Libya, wherever they have gone with their ideology and their guns, women have suffered and then take our country and I guess, you know, we've been very polite thus far, but, you know, we have to address this question. The assumption or the stated position that the real women are transgendered women, that they are as much a woman as any other woman. And in many instances, people would argue more so. And there's even an argument that a transgendered woman can become pregnant and have a child. You know, um, where is all this leading to? What is it doing to the identity and self-awareness and dignity of girls? What does it mean if anti-woman propaganda in the form of transgenderism becomes predominant in the discussion of women's rights? I mean, I mean, I'm often, when I think about it, I'm left speechless and almost breathless. How could this happen? How can so many people be spewing this rhetoric? What does this mean to the unity of the people? What does it mean in the struggle of poor people, poor women, and their children. Is it wrong to be a mother? Is it wrong to give birth? Is the role model the transgendered woman who is biologically in every respect still a man? I would say that it's now time to say enough is enough. And on this celebration, early albeit, 
of International Women's Day. You know, we just have to say long live women in the struggle to free women from all of those oppressions that are a result of the dictatorship of capitalism. And any ideas that are promoted that come from the class that oppresses all working people wherever they are in the world, we have to reject it. Even if we don't know everything about it, there's reason for suspicion. There's reason for skepticism. And how can the ruling class that never emancipated women in this country, how now are they, and we're supposed to accept that they're in the vanguard of the liberation of women in this new LGBTQ and other, other letters movement? Or how, how are we to believe even, I, I take it a step further, that this ruling class is suddenly in the vanguard of the fight against white supremacy. I mean, it's just, they have flipped everything on its head. And I think in the interest of ideological clarity, we have to put things right again, no matter how much canceling takes place. By the way, I say to all the cancelers, come out from behind the closet, come on out front and let's get it on. Let's do the ideological debate. If you are interested in women, if you are interested in black folk, or if you're, well, I, I, very few of them can claim interest in the working class, so who won't even go there. But um, yeah, so that's what I wanna say. It's very troubling. It's an emergency situation. It has to stop. Yeah, on, on that note, um, Glenn Greenwald shared uh, a survey on generations and um, how, ex how they identify in relation to gender and sexuality. I forget the exact graphic, but it uh, showed this, uh, you know, big leap in the younger generation identifying more as genderqueer and, uh, you know, I think he was saying, this isn't, you know, this isn't consistent. Um, that yeah, in older generations, people's sexual identity were repressed, but not to this point where, you know, a lot of the younger generation, especially Gen Z, you know, for example, my coworker has a young daughter in high school and she recently came out to him as, you know, straight, but someone who liked to dominate men as obedience. She told him that, she wanted to be a Dama matrix for Korean men. And this is a white girl. And I, I'm not even sure what that is or what that label is. Uh, but it, there's a moral panic amongst young white people for moral legitimacy. And it's a moral panic in the same vein of the 80s where you have Christian fundamentalists being up in arms about, you know, rock and roll and um, 
music and board games. And this moral panic takes the form of, of reclaiming an oppressed identity, reformulating white identity to be oppressed in the empire. Um, Yeah, and this, yeah, I'll leave it at that. I'll recollect my thoughts. I'll read a few more comments. Um, we have a comment from Kevin Hornbuckle. He writes, they're destroying women by redefining them via bourgeois freedom propaganda put things right by understanding that real, the real conditions under which working class women live. Uh, Nabila writes, and they certainly are not trying to liberate Yemeni women who have been bombed back into the stone age by US backed Saudi forces, shameful. Eddie Barraza writes, the push for the Western conception of the woman is exemplified by celebrities like Megan the Stallion and other women rappers extreme sexualization, equality with the concept of the white man, which is the right to degrade other men and women. Um, one second. Uh, Jeremiah Kim writes, a common academic critique of liberation struggles from world anti-colonial movements to the black freedom movement is that they failed because they were intrinsically patriarchal. Today's presentations helped me to understand how such a critique obscures the fact that women and men in these movements built a new kind of relationship by uniting together in the same revolutionary struggle. Mm -hmm. Vincent Kelly writes, it amazes me that so much of the so-called left today sees discussions of the working class as somehow inherently male-centric or even male supremacist. This says more about this left's implicit commitment to the limited idea of petty bourgeois white womanhood than it does about a true account of the working class, which has and will always include women of all civilizations. Kathy writes, this has been mentioned already, but one of the most moving aspects of the history of the Cuban revolution for me is that many of the important women leaders of the armed liberation struggle who were truly considered equal comrades alongside Fidel and Raul Castro and Che Guevara each went on to contribute greatly to the building of the new Cuban state and are well honored today. One was Vilma Espin, who founded the Cuban Federation of Women, which mobilized especially women for the 1960 Cuban literacy campaign. The organization, or the organization is still an important respected institution in Cuba, in Cuban society today. And Haiti Santa Maria, another freedom found, fighter, founded the Casa de las Americas, a Pan-American cultural center that has fostered a lot of artistic, literary, intellectual exchange across North and South America and beyond, playing a big role in turning Havana and Cuba into an international center of culture. This is all making me think about women's special role in building and fostering mass civic participation in democracy, something we have been talking about through Russia and America as well. And thank you so much from the bottom of my heart to all the women of preschool. Uh, Nuri writes, thank you for the presentations and discussions. Uh, like Michelle and Emily said on the Lord Baldwin conversation, I think the completeness of the triad, man, woman, and child, is so beautiful and important. In the conversation, Lord is focused on the Black woman, 
Whereas Baldwin acknowledges the problems women face, but wants to discuss the interdependence of men and women working together in partnership for the child. Quote, it is difficult to be born in a place where you are despised and also promise that with endeavor with this, with that, you know, you can accomplish the impossible. Trying to deal with the man, the woman, the child, the child of whichever sex, and he or she and your man or your woman has got to deal with the 24 hour a day facts of life in this country. We're not going to fly off someplace else. You know, we'd better get through whatever that day is and still have each other and still raise children and somehow manage all of that, end quote. Baldwin also says, quote, no one will turn me into a woman. You're a woman and you're not a man. No one will turn you into men. And we are indispensable for each other and the children depend on us both, end quote. Realizing that the ideas of womanhood and manhood are not meant to be self-absorbed categories of identity, but are meant to define our role in relation to each other and to humanity as a whole is transforming and freeing, especially in the context of bourgeois liberal obsession with gender and sexuality that young people are inundated with today. Uh, Alice Klein writes, I have been thinking lately about how bourgeois feminism destroys men, not least via misandry, but from how their rallying cries around sending modern soldiers to quote, save Middle Eastern women, sacrifice those men who come back with tortured souls from what they have done. I see this as a direct line back to the evil of white women in the South, egging on lynchings, killing two men with one cry, one physically, and the other his soul by, murdering his by ordering his hands to murder. Do we not have as great a responsibility to these our sons and brothers as to the women we call our daughters and sisters and hope to uplift. That is a very deep comment. And uh, it's definitely true as Doc was also saying earlier, uh, women like Hillary Clinton and Samantha Powers and Susan Rice and whomever else they've appointed to uh, as the US representative to the UN now, they're all being women faces and also just pillars of imperialism and I think as Alice said in a very uh, stirring kind of way uh, it is it is an attack both on the people who are killed in these societies and also on the souls of these soldiers that are sent there to do commit all this unspeakable uh, violence and uh, going back even to International Women's Year that was part of the great struggle all the progressive forces wanted the International Year of Women to also be inseparable from the uh, struggle against war, against poverty, against neocolonialism, and for peace, self-determination. Um, and I think that is the ideological struggle that, as all, pretty much all these comments are also suggesting, that is the ideological struggle that has to be waged today against these bourgeois, white, uh, Western ideas of feminism, which are playing a very, very destructive role, not just here, but around the world. And uh, as Doc was saying, in some ways, these older attacks, which the state used to use on the rest of the world to justify imperialism are also being turned inward because we've seen with the Me Too movement and all of that sort of stuff, even an attack on the white working class men in this populist Trump movement, an attempt to justify this rule of these neoliberal globalist elites in the name of the Me Too movement and so-called uh, you know, women's rights and all that. But the, the and interesting contradiction, this is something everyone can look, in, look up if they're interested. 
uh, why is the Me Too movement not really taken seriously Joe Biden and the accusations against him? The woman who accused him, I think her name is Tara Reid. Uh, she could not even get, no, no American news channel would even cover her. I had to look, you have to, she had to go to 60 Minutes Australia. They were the only ones who did a story on her. And then this Mother Jones magazine, which by the way, like Doc was saying earlier, Mother Jones, I think was one of these great figures of a labor movement. But this Mother Jones magazine is a terrible magazine, which is doing a horrible injustice to the name of Mother Jones. I think she would never have anything to do with it if she were alive today. It's basically a anti-communist liberal mm -hmm. rag. They named Tara Reid as one, they said something, one of the craziest people of 2020. I mean, it's basically a smearing of, of anybody who accused any of the, the so-called the, the men who they, who the liberal and the Me Too movement says, oh, that, you know, is one of the supposed champions of women's rights. Nobody can criticize them, whether it's Joe Biden, whether it's Bill Clinton. I mean, also it shows you the rot that Washington and the ruling class is in that pretty much every, so many of these major male politicians have these accusations against them. And now even the, uh, the other great favorite of the liberals is, so what's his name? Andrew Cuomo of New York. He has all these Me Too allegations along with some other horrible things he may have done to the senior citizens of New York and nursing homes. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, this, this is very important. The fact of clarifying what is real, really about women and what is being done in the name of women to perpetuate these horrific uh, systems of power. And that the boundaries of knowledge and the boundaries of experience do not end at the boundaries or borders of the United States. There's a world experience, there's China, there's Vietnam, there's Cuba, there's the People's Republic of the Congo, there's Mozambique. I'm interested in humanity, not just what some elites educated in some of the dumbest universities in the world have to say about anything. And that's part of the ideological struggle to delegitimate these spokesmen for the ruling class and their stupid books and their anti-people, anti-children, anti-women ideas. And, and believe me, you know, uh, I think Klein, somebody named Klein said how there's a double destruction here of, and this, actually this is King speaking out loud in a certain way. It is the destruction of the, of the man that commits the violence as well as the man who is the victim of the violence in the name of protecting quote white women. I mean, yeah, but today uh, this <clears throat> new ideology of gender is designed to destroy women and young women and girls and to get them in a position where they waste a good part of their young lives on these silly, stupid, quote, gender experiments. Um, it's, you know, it's very, very heartbreaking to think about. Yeah, Doc, I wanted to say that I agreed with your comments on queerness and transgenderism and, and just how pernicious it is in the form that it is taking today because 
it's mostly taking root in the ideas of young people, you know, all this, yeah, I mean, just this focus on pronouns or changing your gender to becoming non-binary because you feel so oppressed by living in empire, but, you know, these ideologies, instead of teaching you to see that, they draw you toward, um, it's, it's like an abstraction away from material reality, like, like understanding your gender without a material basis and what's actually happening in the society. And I think what's so tragic about it is also how it's so directed toward young minds. I mean, we're talking about the potential and the priority of a child in shaping the future of a society, how the man and the woman together have to unite to, um, to uplift you know, the potential of the child. And it's, it's like the influence of these ideologies through social media um, is just reaching people at an earlier and earlier age. And I know even a few years ago, I think like junior high school or high school students polled in California, like a majority of them said that they identified as like neither, like neither man or woman, you know, like, like just so young and already conceptualizing their humanity in a very, in a very fixed, um, yeah, in a very fixed, like anti-human way. And I think the thing that also makes me really, that is really tragic about the transgender slash queer phenomenon is that a lot of these people come into these ways of thinking, I think, because they are trying to make sense of their place in society. They're trying to make sense of who they are and why they feel a certain way. But, um, but it's so different from like the path that Baldwin takes. And I think, you know, as someone who used to identify as queer for a long time and quite seriously so, like reading Baldwin was so freeing because you saw that he conquested to, um, like, like he wanted, he went on a conquest to understand what it meant to become a full human being. And logically he reached the conclusion that you would have to overturn um, like the system of white supremacy and how that lived in you, you know, and you had to redefine um, what it meant to be free and to be a complete person. And I think like people want that spirit, but if you come across the ideology of like queerness and all these young people that you know, maybe online, maybe in person also embody it from such a young age, um, like that entire process is just curtailed for you. Like who, how are you to discover who you really are? Um, it's just a waste, you know, and it's so tragic. And these people aren't happy either, you know? I don't think they feel more complete after, after finding themselves in these ways of thinking and uh, ways of identifying themselves. Okay. Kevin Hornbuckle writes, national wokeism, woke-oism can turn any line of dissent inside out. Um, but, you know, again, it's, I think as we've been discussing this, also this point about the, this woke ideology as the ideology of the managerial class. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, you know, you can add queerness, you can add feminism, you can add a number of other things into that and that's kind of what's being spewed and dominating in all these institutions of academia, media uh, and uh, so on. Um, and yeah, definitely it's played a, I think it's playing a very destructive role in the lives of young people and especially young women because if we look in history, like all these women 
when they were young, they played huge roles in all these movements. Um, and so I think it's probably, there's some calculations from the ruling elite about how to dampen that, how to take them in different directions away from anything that which would be threatening to the uh, system. Yeah, and also to separate you from your mother or like your female relatives who should be the model of, you know, how you go about life. And I mean, also for young men, I mean, but then, yeah, I mean, are these not models of human beings who provided for you and, but just no, I'm neither this nor that. And, you know, it's like the civilizational uh, values that your ancestors have passed down from generation to generation it kind of stops with you, you just cut everything off and then you just become, I mean, you become nothing. If you're not rooted in anything, who are you? I mean, you're just a tool of empire. Right. Um, Jeremiah writes, on Doc's point, I think that the rise of transgender slash queer identity is a phenomenon tied to the moral and political crisis of young people molded by universities and social media. Identifying as queer or trans has become a way of marking yourself as progressive and marginalized while you ascend the ranks of big corporations, academia, NGOs, etc. In universities, you almost need to identify as gender fluid in order to fit in. It's a way of displacing the guilt and confusion you feel about becoming part of the elite and growing further apart from ordinary working people and their traditions of struggle. I think that's a good summary of what of the role of this ideology has been playing. <clears throat> right. Um, so should we start uh, shifting gears and getting into uh, today's reading? All right. Um, yeah, I can share my screen as per usual. And oh, Doc, did you did you say you want, did you want to say something about? About the reading, okay. Oh, oh yeah. Can the I social just... democratic state. Oh yeah, may yeah. I please just? Yes, please. While uh, Michelle is uh, setting it up, go ahead. Yeah, uh, just to resituate um, where we are in this text. I, you know, we've been away from it a little while, and um, I just want to say, and it is still very important. And for those who are new to the free school or don't have the opportunity to be with us all the time. Uh, this text is not something of the distant past. It is very relevant to the moment that we're living in. And, and, and in this chapter, he's talking about the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt. And what I want to uh, uh, say is that it is a continuation of his discussion of the state. And you will recall that we, um, said based upon the text that Du Bois was upholding and celebrating and promoting the dictatorship of the proletariat as it was called in classic Marxism-Leninism. Uh, we could put it in a softer way and say the dictatorship of working people, the foundation of the state being working people. This is what the Russian revolution fundamentally established. Uh, it is also what the Chinese revolution established. It is what the Cuban revolution established. And 
And therefore, once they displace the old capitalist and exploiting ruling classes by the workers and peasants as the foundation of the state, they then become the enemies of Western imperialism. And they're always talking. If you listen to it, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to hear their language, always democracy. And what they're talking about is their form of democracy. What we experience in this country, where, if you don't mind me saying, the people are less free than they are in Vietnam, in Cuba, in China, in uh, North Korea, and a whole lot of other countries. We are more unfree, be it the freedom of speech, the freedom of movement, the freedom of thought, the freedom to be educated, the freedom to have a job, the freedom, all of these freedoms under bourgeois democracy or the dictatorship of the capitalist class, all of these freedoms do not exist for the majority of the people. Um, so the dictatorship of working people is a way to guarantee that the democratic aspirations and democratic needs of working people are protected. We have no rights that the powerful, the rich, and the ruling class need respect in this country. And we're seeing it right now. We have no rights the rights of children not to be sexualized, not to be drugged down into a sewer of, of absurd stuff. None of that exists, you know? Um, so, but what Du Bois says, and he's arguing that the most advanced form in US history of the dictatorship of the capitalist class was the period of the New Deal and the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, and, and, and that was a bourgeois social democracy. That is as far as the ruling class being ca the capitalist state can ever go in realization of the needs of working people. The other two forms of bourgeois state power are the liberal form, today we call it the neoliberal form, free market capitalism, and the other, and then of course, the paternalism of that, i.e. Joe Biden, oh, I'm gonna give you everything that you ever wanted, and I'm, you know, we're gonna repair all of the debt. And hey, if you believe that, I got two bridges in Brooklyn I have to sell you, but it's not going to happen. It is neoliberal uh, bourgeois democracy. Uh, and primary to everything is profit over people. The other form is fascism. Fascism, uh, and I, you know, we criticized um, uh, Cornell West, who was parenthetically in a real struggle for tenure at Harvard, 
mainly for dignity, uh, but Cornel West's hyperbolic language that did not clarify anything but obscured everything. We have a neo-fascist thug in the White House. Well, <laughs> neo-fascism is not, or fascism is not an individual matter. It is a state form. It is when the ruling class is threatened by an uprising of the people that they turn to the most extreme forms of repression, and that is fascism. Uh, we might be, and I, I hope no one takes this the wrong way, we might be closer to that institutionally uh, and otherwise under Biden and the neoliberals and big tech and Wall Street than we were under Trump, ironically. Uh, now the state that Du Bois upholds is the state of the working people, which evolves to, as we've said, the state of the whole people and the civilization state. North Korea, I think, and perhaps Cuba are closer to the state of the whole people than anywhere in the world. Maybe China, I'm not sure but certainly North Korea and Cuba, a united people, a high level of solidarity. There is no opposing or antagonistic class to challenge that within Cuba or North Korea. Their only enemies are external, the US uh, uh, and, and the West. Uh, that's all I wanted to say. And so that's what Du Bois is, is looking at here. Uh, he's not, equating the New Deal to what the Soviet Union was doing and what Stalin was doing. But he says this, I think he is suggesting that this is the best under bourgeois rule that we can expect. Right. So uh, yeah, we'll be continuing on uh, page 176 where we read about roughly half the chapter before and hopefully we'll be able to finish up this chapter, which as Doc said, is about the rise of Roosevelt. We left off where he was discussing uh, some of the uh, progressive measures done by the New Deal, but also talking about the limitations, the fact that, and he pointed to the fact that the US education system, social science is very weak and teaches very little about Marxism or class analysis as one of the major weaknesses. And then he also talked about the anti-communism in society and the fact that even the social democratic measures were being painted as uh, communist by the right wing. Um, I also shared a link to the full PDF for those who are new in the comments of the free school. You can download it there and read along with us. And we'll also be sharing screen so you can see. Uh, so Michelle, do you have it uh, ready? Yeah, I have it pulled up. Okay, great. Well, let me make you co-host so you can do it. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Okay, how does how does this look? Make Good. it a little larger. Larger? If you can. Yeah, that's Is cool. It... That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Nice. <laughs> okay. Nice. 
Okay, is this good? That looks good, yeah. <laughs> Doc, you look so happy. That's <laughs> <laughs> bad, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. Okay. I'm starting from 176. The real underlying effort was to transfer some of the swollen income of industry to the persons who raise basic materials. Big business was ever concerned to prevent abundance of goods from flooding the market. The New Deal sought to bring agriculture into this program because the farmers during the war had so increased production that now farm prices were about to collapse. To do this directly by taxation on business was opposed by industry but since it must be done, it was accomplished by destruction of food and by bonus. But the bonuses, instead of reaching the dirt farmer, quite often reached only the junker land monopoly, which was applying capitalist methods to farming and reducing the dirt farmer to tenancy. The attempt to go further and help the small farmer with his mortgages was sabotaged largely by the Supreme Court. But that Roosevelt was far ahead in his thinking of the average intelligent American was clear from the revolutionary nature of his next steps, the Tennessee Valley Authority and the National Recovery Act, both of which involved reform of basic American economy. The most startling measure of the New Deal was the National Recovery Act, by which the government tried temporarily to assume direct control over the entire business of the country. It did not directly take over industries, but invited representatives to Washington to work out codes of fair dealing to be followed. Industries which refused might be put under a blanket code. Those which violated the code would have the blue eagle, symbol of cooperation, taken away. By the end of Roosevelt's first year, nearly 400 codes had been drawn up and 90% of the industrialists of the country were supporting the NRA. The terms fixed minimum wages, prescribed hours of labor, abolished sweatshop and child labor in various industries and required businessmen to submit the examination of their books by government inspectors. This measure took imagination and courage. Organized industry reeling under national panic accepted the effort with a wry face. American labor had clung to its laissez-faire objection to government interference in its business, but now with one sweep, the NRA turned it into a semi-public trade union. One section of the NRA strengthened organized labor by forbidding employees to discharge men for belonging to a union, quote, of their own choosing. This abolished the open shop, nor could the employees be forced to join the company unions controlled by the employers. The terms of the act were resisted by some manufacturers, but most of them, uh, uh, most of them, what does that say? Okay, I'll skip it. But well, most, complied, of them, complied, I think. most of them complied. Complied, right. complied, complied, yeah. But most of them complied under the pressure of public opinion and the threats of General Johnson. Before this act had been thoroughly tried out, the Supreme Court long representatives of business interests outlawed its main features. However, in the Wagner Act of 1935, the right of labor to bargain, long recognized by all civilized lands, was at last conceded by this nation and it was admitted that coal mines might be run without machine guns and Pinkerton detectives. detectives. Court injunctions were curbed in order to induce labor unions not to use their political power and form a real labor party. The Tennessee Valley Authority was a perfectly clear case of government intrusion in an area of economic endeavor where private enterprise could not enter save with powers of government. 
It had been championed in vain for years by George Norris. It at last was forced through Congress amid the bitter opposition of industry. For industry knew that this was the entering wedge for similar projects covering the river system of the whole country and destined to break the private monopoly of public wealth in agriculture, forestry, and power control. Franklin Roosevelt deserves credit for this consummation of the life work and fine vision of Senator Normus. The president said, quote, it is clear that the Muscle Shoals development is but a small part of the potential public usefulness of the entire Tennessee River. Such use, if envisioned in its entirety, transcends mere power development. It enters the wide fields of flood control, soil erosion, afforestation, elimination from agricultural use of marginal lands, and distribution and diversification of industry. In short, this power development of war days leads logically to national planning for a complete river watershed involving many states and the future lives and welfare of millions. It touches and give, gives life to all forms of human concern. Industry submitted to this at first because of panic and the tottering of all security. Then it, became, then it began to fight back against the quote, red in the White House. The Supreme Court long representatives of business interests threw out Roosevelt's attempt to regulate industry by codes, emasculated his attempt to refinance farm mortgages and stopped the stabilizing of the bituminous coal industry. Of his nine main measures, the court spoiled seven. Roosevelt attempted to curtail the reaction of these quote, nine old men, but failed until death and age helped him out. <laughs> From here, Roosevelt went forward to curbing the quote, unjust concentration of wealth and economic power by surtaxes on income. This was the most dangerous invasion on the inner control of the nation by, no by monopoly, which the president dared. It caused his election to a second term by overwhelming vote of 27 to 16 million votes and an almost unanimous electoral vote. The people of the United States were behind Roosevelt. If he had an overhead guiding, if he had had an overhead guiding plan toward which he was steering, he might have transformed the nation from a plutocracy to a social democracy. But he was hampered by the courts, that part of our political structure which the founders purposely left outside democratic control. The size and power of organized industry was so great that Roosevelt would have had a life task to curb it, even if he had really sensed its power. He did not, although his vision was growing and clearing. He began to conceive of taxation as a means of transferring wealth from the rich to the poor, and Townsend and Huey Long did not stand in his mind as mere demagogues. The president said in his second inaugural address, quote, I see one third of a nation, ill-housed, ill-clad, ill-nourished. The Bureau of Labor Statistics and the National Resources Committee showed in depression years that nearly one third of all American incomes were under $750 a year and nearly half under 1,000. Since then, the national income in dollars has increased, even though the dollar has decreased in value and yet 8 million American families and individuals in 1948 received cash incomes of less than $1,000. The New York Times admits, quote, relatively few of our population can save enough during the most useful working years to sustain them during the years when they are too old or too feeble to work. The resistance of big business to the Roosevelt New Deal was unremitting. The chief Republican paper in April 1934 declared that 
administration's policies had been a succession of unrelated and hastily devised remedies, and that, quote, so far from producing a planned economy, the New Deal has produced an economic chaos with no end in sight. Aubrey Williams said, the fight <coughs> the Security and Exchange Commission, which required them to tell the truth about what they were selling, the Wages and Hours Act, which provided a living wage, and the Labor Standards Act, which prevented them from throwing a man into jail for asking his fellow worker to join a union. To destroy these and other laws enacted on in behalf of the people, quote, they have undertaken to poison the people against the people's government. They marked for destruction, the Wages and Hours Act, the Fair Labor Standards Act, the Securities Exchange Act, the Fair Employment Practices Commission, the Federal Communications Commission, the Unemployment Feature of the Social Security Act, the Farm Security Administration, the Production Credit Administration, the National Housing Administration, the Bank for Cooperatives, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the HOLC. Congress echoed the fight of industry because Congress was under control of industry rather than democracy. But neither Roosevelt nor his followers realized just how this was happening. It was not only in the controlled voting of the East and Middle West, but in the utter suppression of democracy in the South. Here, the withheld voting power of the Negroes was not eliminated, but was exercised by the white majority and not by white laborers, but by capitalists and employers. Here then could be sent to Congress and kept there the most reactionary defenders of wealth and monopoly to inherit the most powerful committee assignments. This hard immovable core of opposition could not be met by democratic methods of reason and appeal. The plight of the Negroes themselves aggravated the unemployment situation by furnishing a massive labor which had to accept wage at any level offered. New techniques, new enterprises, mass production, impersonal ownership and control had largely displaced the skilled Negro worker in tobacco manufacturing, in iron and steel, in lumbering and mining, and in transportation, and confined their common labor and domestic service to the lowest paid and worst conditioned varieties. In the new textile, chemical, and other manufacturers, Negroes were nearly excluded. Just as slavery excluded the poor white from agriculture, so freedom excluded the poor Negro from rising and expanding manufacture. On the other hand, the worldwide fall of agriculture carried the mass of black farmers more and more down to the level of landless tenants and peons. The world war and its wild aftermath seemed for a moment to open a new door. Two million black workers rushed north to work in iron and steel industries to make automobiles, pack meat, build houses, and do the heavy toil in factories. They met the closed trade union, which pressed them to the wall, into the low-wage gutter, and denied them homes and mobbed them, and then the Depression met all. In the Depression, Negro workers, like white workers, lost their jobs, had mortgages foreclosed on their farms and homes, and used up their small savings. But in the case of the Negro worker, everything was worse in larger or smaller degree. The loss was greater and more permanent. Technological displacement began before the depression was accelerated. The unemployment and fall in wage struck black men sooner, lasted longer and went to lower levels. In the rural South, their education almost ceased while Southern city schools were crowded to suffocation. Above all in the Negroes case, local and federal relief helped him last. 
It was easily explicable human nature that the unemployed white man and the starving white child should be relieved first by local authorities who regarded them as fellow men and regarded the Negroes as subhuman. Moreover, it might happen that while the white worker was given more than relief and help to his feet, the black worker was pauperized by being just kept from starvation. And even when finally plans were making for national rehabilitation and the rebuilding of the whole industrial system, such plans called for decision as to the Negro's future and his relations to industry and culture in this country, which the country was not prepared to make and therefore often refused to consider. The basic problem of the New Deal was whether to make its objective an effort to quote, restore former prosperity or some more fundamental change in the central economic structure of the nation to bring greater stability and economic justice. If it was the first, there was not much hope for the Negro. He simply could look forward to being, quote, restored to a situation in which his prospects for economic development were growing less and less. If Southern agriculture was to be put on its feet again by government aid, the Negro would remain mainly the tenant farmer and exploited casual laborer. If the great industries were to be similarly, quote, restored, the Negro would still be the reservoir of unskilled labor with uncertain employment and low wage. And the restoration of banking and credit would mean comparatively little to a poverty-stricken horde of laborers. On the other hand, if the relation of industry to labor in general was to be overhauled and readjusted, if the whole relation of the farming industry to the other industry of the land was to be carefully readjusted with regard to prices, methods, machines, and markets, if unemployment was to be eradicated by shorter hours, minimum wage, the forbidding of child labor, and the arrangement of old age security, if these and similar measures were going to change radically the basis of American life, then the American Negro, barring gross discrimination, was going to have a quote, new deal, a new change to improve his condition. The first blow to Negroes came when farm laborers and domestics were not included under the protection of the NRA codes for industry. Thus, three million Negro workers, more than half of the total number who must work for their livelihood, were not covered by the industrial codes. These three million were the backbone of the Negro consumer market. For them, an immediate rise in prices meant additional insecurity and suffering. Furthermore, in certain areas where uniform minimum wages were established for black and white workers, employers replaced Negroes with whites rather than pay the same wages. Thus, the New Deal not only met opposition of concentrated wealth based on Negro disenfranchisement, disfranchisement but also increased the opposition of white labor by increasing or failing greatly to decrease the number of poor and unemployed Negroes whose plight threatened the white standard of living. The result was violence and race riots. Instead of decreasing in wealth and power during the crisis of 1929 to 33, America's richest families were strengthened while masses of citizens were reduced to beggary. And even though many people were lifted from extreme low economic levels by some restoration of employment, the basic inequalities issuing from no fundamental differences in skill or merit remained as great as ever. Hmm. Parale paralleling reemployment, which reduced the aggregate of joblessness from about 20 million in 1932 to about 10 million in 1937, 
Fantastic dividend and interest payments were automatically returned to the top income group of not more than 6,000 adults. The United States has not only nurtured the wealthiest class history has ever known, but it has also spawned an immense, possibly permanent army of paupers, the unemployed. One expects to find millions of impoverished and backward economies such as India and China, Japan, or formerly in Tsarist Russia. In the advanced economic and cultural environment of North America, with all its natural resources, the phenomenon is tragically absurd. Fewer than 20% of the people possess nearly everything, while nearly 80% own practically nothing. None can say how far Franklin Roosevelt would have gone in reorganizing the economy of the nation if the work of the first five years of his reign had continued and expanded. We might now have lived in a different world. But war intervened and once again, as so often in the past, ruined the future of mankind. It was a senseless, inexplicable war, which none wanted, none foresaw. Its genesis was the First World War, which halted the colonial imperialism of Europe and laid its industrial organization in ruins. The one cure for this on which Europe was practically unanimous was the suppression of the Russian Revolution of 1917. From that time until the collapse of industry in 1930, Europe had waged war directly or through spies and propaganda against Russia. The dictatorships of Mussolini and Hitler were strengthened by the belief that Germany and Italy meant the fall of the Soviets. When Germany and Italy attacked Britain and France, the world was aghast. Franklin Roosevelt particularly was turned entirely from his task of the New Deal to the salvation of the British Empire, which to him and his class stood for all that civilization meant. He did not grasp the meaning of the Soviets or the part they played. He, rather, he tended rather to ignore them as of minor significance until later, far later in the conflict. It was this threat to Britain more than any conception of the place of the United States in international industry and trade that seemed behind his desire to enter the Second World War. Nor was his grasp of the international plight of total industrial organization enlarged. Rather, the world situation looked to him as primary politi primarily political. All his education and social conditioning went toward his primary effort to save British culture. He forced the nation into virtual war before war was declared, furnishing battlecraft and lend lease of material to bolster the tottering British empire. Russia entered but casually into his thought, although he had as one of his first official acts as president, ended our silly refusal to recognize the Soviets. But Russia in 1939 seemed to Roosevelt negligible he accepted the current American belief that the country was essaying an impossible economic experiment, soon doomed to inner collapse from starvation or revolution. Neither he nor the British made any real effort to make alliance with Russia. When Sumner Wells was sent to sound out Europe on peace, Russia was not included. Roosevelt did not feel that such a visit would be of any use and regarded Russia as a certain victim of Hitler. Roosevelt did not at the same time understand in the least the intricate problems that faced the Soviets or the situation which forced the war against Finland. Thus, although both the British and Americans knew that Hitler was planning to attack Russia, no plans were mentioned to secure Russia's help, which was not regarded worth the effort. 
Churchill forecasts the march of Hitler through the Balkans, Russia, and even, quote, to the gates of India. Lend-lease was debated two months and was admitted as necessary to save Britain, Greece, and China. Open permission for the president to include other countries, especially Russia, brought sharp opposition. There is a hard fight and compromise was suggested, but the president was firm and got the power to extend Lend-lease to the Soviets if Hitler or Japan attacked her. Stalin in 1939 had no faith in the ability of Britain, France, or the United States to stop Hitler. Russia had long regarded Germany as her eventual ally. She had, until the rise of Hitler, hoped that the German communists would gain control and swing Germany toward the east. But as Hitler and German industry gained control, Stalin knew that Hitler meant to conquer Russia if possible and destroy communism. He sought alliance then knowing Hitler, then knowing that Hitler could not be trusted, but also knowing that every moment of delay gained would enable the Soviet Union better to prepare for the inevitable attack. Every effort has been made to obscure this role of Russia from 1933 to 1939. Yet the facts are clear. When the Nazi revolution came, Russia tried to ensure world peace. She joined the League of Nations, made mutual aid treaties with France and Czechoslovakia, urged sanctions against Mussolini and his attack on Ethiopia, aided the Spanish Republic, helped China against Japan, and asked for an international conference against Hitler after his seizure of Austria. Had this Russian initiative been followed, World War II would have never occurred. But France and Britain refused because such a policy would have protected Russia and they wanted Hitler to conquer Russia and remove this menace to world capitalism, which they had tried to eliminate since 1917. The United States also refused cooperation with Russia, although Roosevelt was dissatisfied by this attitude. He was held back by Congress, the State Department, and the Catholic Church. Western Europe hoped that Hitler would leave it in peace while he attacked Russia. For this, they were willing to give up the League of Nations, yield Manchuria to Japan, let Germany rearm and take Austria, Czechoslovakia and the Rhineland, give Ethiopia to Italy and Spain to Frank France. Franco. <laughs> Our own bullet said, it would be the wish of democratic countries that armed conflict would break out in the East between the German Reich and Russia. Germany would be obliged to wage a long and weakening war. The Dodd Diary says that, quote, Britain, the Nazis, and Bullet favored dividing the world with Germany dominating all of Europe. Japan was to control Asia, unquote. But in March 1939, Hitler made it clear that he proposed to attack the West before crushing Russia. Britain and France were dismayed but persisted in seeking to appease Hitler at the expense of Russia. Britain proposed a curious pact that Russia should undertake, quote, if desired, to fight Germany in case Germany attacked Poland or Romania. And this after Poland had refused to permit Russia's soldiers on her soil. There is no suggestion that England would fight Germany if Germany attacked Russia, and naturally Russia refused such a commitment. A month later, Chamberlain, although refusing to revisit Russia, proposed a Soviet alliance, but with no commitment as to the future of the Baltic states, which had for 20 years, 
had been the spearhead for Western conquest of Russia. He finally sent a minor official to Russia by slow boat with power to agree only to consultation in case Russia was attacked. Roosevelt could take no action, but a member of the United States staff in Russia gave Germany every encouragement. Finally, in July, Chamberlain agreed to, quote, a military mission to Moscow, composed of men of no standing and no power. Because of Britain's refusal to make a treaty of mutual assistance, the Soviets determined to make alliance with Germany if they could obtain defense of their own frontiers in Poland and the Baltic states. This pact enabled Russia to seize so much of Poland as would ensure her own defense against Germany, nor was any other procedure possible since neither Poland nor England would consent to Russia's defense of England. Sorry, defense of Poland. Already in May, France and Britain knew that a German-Soviet treaty involving the seizure of Poland would follow failure to make a treaty between Russia and the West. They refused to do this and instead in January 1940, they agreed to wage war themselves on Russia and Finland and in the Soviet oil fields in the Southwest. They had 100,000 troops to which Sweden refused passage in March. After the Soviets and Finland made peace, the French and British staffs continued to plan war against Russia in the Caucasus oil fields. Meantime, in November 1940, Russia tried to sound out Hitler in accord with his proposal of a more extended alliance but already Hitler, without knowledge of many of his trusted advisors, had determined in August to fight Russia. War began in June 1941. While war is waging, all thought of its cause is submerged in the all-out struggle to win. And when, in addition, the expenditure of war solves, of war solved problems of unemployment and profit, then danger mounts with victory and is at the same time disguised. This was the case of Roosevelt in the Second World War. His and the nation's attention was diverted from fundamental domestic problems to saving Great Britain and to a personal devil called Hitler, who came to stand for all evil. But behind the phenomena of Hitler and Mussolini lurked and festered basic problems, which were the counterpart of those which caused the crash of 1929 in America. The economic organization of the world had cracked widely, if not permanently. In that world organization, America had played an essential role, not less important because it was industrial rather than political. To recover from collapse, effort on a world scale with world planning was essential. The United States attempted the impossible task of national and internal recovery, separate from world adjustment. On this theory of the socialism of the New Deal was based and could at best have been but partially successful, but it was a forward step and was leading straight to international effort. First by tariff reduction and then by economy plan for the world and not just for America. This tendency fascism halted by attempting the restoration of world economy, not so much by fundamental change as simply by changing the beneficiaries of the system. Germany and Italy were to share equally in the profits of colonialism and world trade. To intensify and integrate this demand, both these lands affected a new internal distribution of wealth, which was a national but not international socialism. <laughs> American recovery had no international aims and small national transfer of wealth, but there had appeared in Russia a new international socialism, which both fascism on the one side 
and the dictatorship of organized both in the United States and Britain feared. After a world war to crush Russian communism, failed because the organizations of world industry, which it was protecting broke down, every effort was made to effect a modus vivendi between the German and British control of world trade. It would have been successful had not megalomania approaching insanity taking grip on Hitler. <laughs> he began to conceive himself not as equal partner of the industrial giants, Britain, France, and the United States, but as conqueror of Russia and master of the world. <laughs> he accomplished recognition and full partnership in world industry so easily during the years of industrial disaster that in 1939, he entered arrogantly on his vaster and more fantastic mission. Actually, I wanted to pause here and ask if maybe someone else could continue reading because I think I'm losing a little bit of steam. Okay. <laughs> maybe mm -hmm. Alice, could yeah. you read or someone else? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, we're on page 191. Yeah, no, I, should I project or? Um, I, I think so, yeah. Second. Can I ask, does everybody kind of understand what he's saying here? Does it make sense? Well, you know, um, one of the things that he's saying is that, you know, the New Deal uh, was a form, uh, was the beginning of the restructuring of the American economy, away from the free market, um, uh, large monopolies towards a regulated econ economy with the rights of labor, etc. He said, but that was interrupted by the World War. He said that there was nothing in Roosevelt's background, his education, to let him to lead him to understand anything about the world situation, especially after the Russian Revolution. And all he knew is that. Uh, the United States had to defend British culture, British civilization, British institutions, including colonialism. But they didn't understand Hitler well enough. That Hitler not only wanted to achieve the objectives of the German government during World War I, which was to redistribute the colonial world especially the African colonies, so that Germany uh, uh, got a piece of the action, which was equivalent to its um, industry. It was, it was surpassing Britain, the, you know, and so on, but it had no colonies and not significant colonies, especially in Africa. That was World War I. Well, Hitler was interested in restoring uh, in doing what World War I didn't achieve, but then he goes further, that he wants to establish what he called a thousand year right. Uh, and Du Bois is saying that Hitler uh, went from megalomania to insanity and, um, and that he, uh, over, he, Hitler, overestimated what could be achieved and underestimated uh, Stalin and the Soviet Union. And really what uh, Hitler, Hitler had this idea of a Berlin to Baghdad railway that would go from the center of Europe to the Middle East, Baghdad, Iraq, oil, but would also 
go through the Caucasus and the Soviet oil fields. And, and the German um, ruling class and Hitler knew enough to know that in the, in the middle of the 20th century, whoever controlled oil would have the upper hand in the world economy. So, so all of the plans to restructure um, American capitalism, especially in the throes of the Great Depression, uh, went out the window. The other thing that Du Bois is saying is that to solve the problems that led to the Great Depression that began in 1929, there would have to be planning on a worldwide scale. And I would underline this planning on a worldwide scale. In other words, the same methods that had been used were being used in the Soviet Union had to be applied on a world scale. And I, I, I just hope we keep in our minds this idea of economic planning because that might be necessary in this part of the 21st century to solve a whole plethora of problems, including pandemics, world poverty, unemployment, the maldistribution of income and wealth and resources. So I'll stop there, but that, that's what he's talking about. And uh, he lays it out very, very well. Um, uh, the war begins in 1939 uh, when uh, the Germans violate the, um, the Soviet German pact, uh, which divided Poland, and then the Soviets come into it in 1941, 1940, when Hitler attacks the Soviet Union. All right. So with that, I'll continue the reading. Are you guys able to see the uh, text? Great. He determined to conquer France and Britain in turn, and then ignoring the United States, crush Russia, and with Japan, work his will in Asia. This wild dream could have been stopped in its tracks by a combination of Britain, Russia, and the United States. But both Britain and France discounted Russia. First, they thought her weak and on the verge of collapse because of her planned economy. And second, they feared that in her case, her socialism, in case her socialism was successful, it might spread by example or force to the British Empire and America. The war itself was a set of contradictions. Britain and France did not wish to fight Germany or Italy. They were ready to make every appeasement. They gave Ethiopia to Italy almost gladly. They were ready to yield to Hitler everything in reason and more. He could take back the Rhineland. He could rearm. He could have his colonies in Africa back if he wished. He could repartition Poland. He could have Austria and most of Czechoslovakia. He could take the Baltic states and attack Russia. He could join Japan in dominance of Asia. All that imperial Britain and France asked, was a fair division of the spoils of empire in a new arrangement of the world domination of Europe. But if Hitler was going to dictate terms and dominate the world through Germany, then they would and must fight and call America's aid. 
the United States displayed no enthusiasm. We had pulled England's chestnuts out of the fire before. We did not like France for various reasons, not the least of which was her lack of color hate. <laughs> we sympathized with Germany. Then industry and finance had a word to say. Suppose the British Empire and the vast dominion of France fell. Who would be heirs but America? It was the American century by logic and no need fighting for it. Let socialism in Germany and the Soviet Union kill each other off while we inherited the earth. Against, such, against some such philosophy as this, more or less clearly conceived, Franklin Roosevelt fought from 1938 to 1941. He turned from the New, New Deal and on the strength of his third triumphant victory in 1940, forced the nation into war by gift and agreement, land lease, annexation, and warships. He took Republicans into the cabinet, got millions appropriated for defense, and with Churchill drafted the Atlantic Charter on old and nearly forgotten terms of no new territorial annexation. Self-government, free trade, free travel, better labor conditions, and world government. Yet the United States stubbornly stayed out of war until with unbelievable effrontery, Japan attacked the United States. Japan was colored. The United States had browbeat her, cajoled her, insulted her, admired her, but refused her recognition as an equal and induced Great Britain to do the same. But these little brown men had persisted had built a mighty empire and demanded partnership with the white world. Her military might and her marvelous expanding industry was making her a feared rival of white imperialism in Yellow Asia. Finally, this Japan made alliance with Germany and while feigning negotiation destroyed our sea power in Hawaii. This made war not only possible, but imperative backed by American color prejudice. To, uh, I think a page is missing, yeah, so yeah. I'll continue. Um, Congress voted 18 billions of dollars for armament and established the draft in March. Lend-lease was authorized by Congress. By June, Hitler had turned on Russia and Roosevelt saw that Lend-Lease must go to her. He and Churchill met in, met in Mid-Atlantic in August and framed the Atlantic Charter. Still, the United States paused until Pearl Harbor. Then all America wanted the United States to attack and conquer Japan quickly. But as to Europe, there was no unanim unanimity. Most Americans wanted Russia to lose. Many wanted Britain to lose, and some wanted Roosevelt to lose. Of course, the United States of Great Britain and the Soviet Union could win. But who wanted to unite with Russia? Meantime, big business went to work. Here was a chance to get even with, quote, the Red New Deal with a Soviet seal endorsed by a Moscow hand, end quote and three phases of attitudes toward the world war ensued. One, 
the quote-unquote sit-down strike of the corporations which refused to go into production of both the defense program of 1939 and the first wartime program of 1941 to 1942. Two, profiteering and robbery of the American people, manufacture and delivery of defective airplane motors, copper, wire, bullets, and other war materials, resulting in endangering the lives of American soldiers. Three, the secret cartel deals by which the biggest American corporations supplied nations soon to be our enemies with materials and information and kept America unprepared. The rubber famine lasted for years because Standard Oil has suppressed the artificial rubber patents. The aluminum shortage arose because the melon interests were in a cartel with the Nazis. The steel interests refused to expand. The allied nations, notably Britain and Russia, held the military lines at a loss of millions of men and homes and homes and billions in treasure, while the United States spent two years getting into production of the instruments for winning the war. Those owning copper mines managed by Barney Baruch made, uh, made extravagant profits. A billion dollars were spent on airplanes before a single one was delivered. Steel plate costing $315 a ton was sold to the government for $400 to $600 a ton. The government spent over $100 million for nitrates, but got none before the armistice. $400 million were spent on 19, uh, 1,900 contracts for shells, which never reached the firing line. Shipping lines sold ships to the government for $2 million each and bought them back for $300,000. Mm. It was clear that the industrial leader in business for profit refused to take the risk of expanding their plants for a war of indefinite length, especially since business and consumer goods like automobiles was booming. Moreover, in war production, he faced strikes. His recourse was to demand enormous profit for all he did. This he got while America gambled in death and Britain was at the point of collapse. Both Britain and the United States rebuffed Russia's frantic efforts to make alliance with them and forced her either to ally herself with Hitler or fight the world. The Western world was aghast when Hitler offered Russia the alliance which they had refused. They knew the truce was phony and so did Russia. But Russia immediately moved to strengthen her Western frontier in Poland while Hitler crushed France and had Britain gasping for breath when the United States rescued her with arms and materials. Balked here, Germany turned and attacked Russia. Here was the opportunity of the modern world. Immediate and concerted efforts could have contained Hitler and Mussolini and united Europe could have held Japan in Asia. But this would have made Russia co-partner with the erstwhile masters of the world. To this, Britain, the United States, nor France were prepared to ascend. Hitler, with startling change, turned east to conquer Bolshevism and control Asia through Japan before finishing the conquest of the West. The West awaited with relief and almost with complacency the quick overthrow of Russia.
This would at least give breathing space and a chance eventually to make terms with Hitler by restoring Germany, German colonies in Africa and elsewhere with such other compromises as were necessary. And at any rate with the certainty that the threat of communism in the world would be laid for a generation, if not forever. The United States finally started her war effort with appropriations rising to nearly eight billions a month by the middle of 1943, which showed not only our sacrifice, but even more the profits of our industry. We had an army of 4 million by the fall of 1942, and then we entered the war. We gave away $15 billion of dollars in Lend-Lease by September 1943, but our armies and Navy late in 1942 went to Asia and Africa, and Africa not to Europe. Back of this move was the desire to save the world of colonial peoples from Germany and Italy, and part of it showed the hope that Germany and the Soviets would kill each other off, leaving Western Europe to recover slowly and divide the earth with the United States. Does everybody see what's going on here? You see this drama? You know, first of all, American industrial capital did not want to produce what was necessary to wage a war against Hitler because they were not convinced and they were linked to, the, to German capitalists they were not convinced that defeating Germany was in the interest of world capitalism, but they did feel that Germany's defeating and destroying the Soviet Union was in the interest of world capitalism. So they sat on the sidelines. The United States had this lend lease where they gave money to Britain uh, after the Germans were bombing it and to help it, you know, shore up its military and its economy but hesitated to do the same in Russia towards the Soviet Union. And what Du Bois is saying, that Hitler could have been stopped in Europe and Japan and Asia had there been a united front, but the West did not want it. And certain historians, I don't think so much today, referred to German imperialism, especially in this period, as the strike force of world imperialism, the vanguard of world imperialism. So that's kind of the drama. He talks about Finland. He talks about the, Balk, uh, the Baltic states, uh, Latvia, Estonia, and uh, Latvia, uh, Latvia, Estonia, and uh, Lithuania, you know, right on, on the uh, Baltic Sea. Finland the same, and that was, those were considered the soft underbelly of the Soviet Union. And uh, Hitler and the Germans had always considered attacking the Soviet Union through Finland or through the Baltic states. Uh, ultimately, they go through the Ukraine. But the West was surprised and bewildered by the resistance which Russia exhibited to the fierce onslaught of the Germans. The British immediately suggested American Lend-Lease to the Soviets. It would not save them, but would give Britain longer breathing spell and forward that mutual annihilation of two enemies which might save the world. Roosevelt agreed and sent Harry Hopkins to Russia. This was a masterstroke. 
Hopkins found in Stalin, a blunt, straightforward man fighting to win a war with a nation back of him. A human nexus between two great countries was established and grew from then until Rush Roosevelt's death and until Jimmy Burns tried to, quote, get tough with Russia and gained by threats of the atom bomb what Roosevelt got by compromise and friendship. The Russian resistance grew and hardened. The German attack became an all-out struggle of vast proportions. MacArthur wrote in 1942, quote, the world situation at the present time indicates that the hopes of civilization rest on the worthy banners of a courageous Russian army. During my lifetime, I have participated in a number of wars and witnessed others, as well as studying in great detail the campaigns of outstanding leaders of the part. And none have I observed such effective resistance to the heaviest blows of the here the two uh, undefeated enemy, followed by a smashing counterattack, which is driving the enemy back to his own land. The scale and grandeur of this effort marks it as the greatest military achievement in all history. End quote. If the West had responded by an equally strong push on Hitler's bare rear, the war might have been settled in 1943. But the world and its military efforts refused to believe their eyes and was sure that Russia must eventually be completely vanquished. Hopkins wrote Churchill, quote, There is still an amazing number of people here who do not want to help Russia and who don't seem to be able to pound into the thick heads the strategic importance of that front, end quote. Lord Beaverbrook wrote in 1943, Quote, can we afford more time for preparation? The Germans have a most powerful army in the East. The Russians used up men and resources at a heavy rate last winter, an offensive which stopped short of its fullest aims. There is always the risk that Japan will stab in the back. It cannot be said that Moscow, Baku, or Leningrad are out of danger. It can still be said, it can still less be said that we and Americans could in any measurable space of time win without Russia, Russian assistance, end quote. Stalin pled in vain for counterattack on Hitler's rear, but it was not fully until July 1943 that the Americans and British attacked Southern Italy and did not reach Rome until June 1944. And Eisenhower did not land in Normandy Normandy until that same month, after it was clear that Russia was driving Hitler to the wall. The Russian, the Western armies had stalled, hoping that Germany and Russia would destroy each other and thus eliminate the two greatest threats to the restoration of the former world industrial imperialism. They were deceived. Russia proved stronger, far stronger than they thought possible. She conquered Germany and entered Berlin April 30th 1945, just as the Allies captured Italy and three months after the near disaster of the bulge. Asia conquered by, Russia, by Japanese refused on Japan's defeat to return to a colonial role. The world had to be recast of Russia as one of the main partners 
with Asia starting toward autonomy, not simply in political control, but in economic independence. It was here that Russia turned, it was here that Roosevelt turned back from war to economic reconstruction and played his greatest role disastrously, disastrously interrupted by death in 1945. Britain, interested in her African and Asiatic empire, had turned her strength to North Africa instead of France and Germany. The United States was induced to join this effort and then strike at the Mediterranean and the Near East instead of Germany. There was shrewd calculation here to appease the certain wrath of Hitler by saving him from defeat in Europe while strengthening British hold on Asia and the Near East and using this for bargaining after Hitler's delayed tri triumph. The sudden uprush and miraculous foray of Japan threw consternation into both Britain and America. Russia, instead of figuring as a threat and nuisance who might serve to weaken Hitler, became the one great nation which might wipe out the German menace and contain Japan. Here Roosevelt rose to statemanship. He set out to build friendship with the Union of Soviets and dragged Churchill with him. The only men in the world at the time capable of getting the trust and friendship of Stalin was Franklin Roosevelt. And he accomplished this by frankness and honest dealing. He knew that Stalin was no fool nor barbarian. He knew that Russia had demands and was capable of enforcing them. He knew that Stalin kept his word, but was not to be misled by flattery nor double talk. Personal conferences were arranged between Roosevelt, Churchill, Stalin, and Chiang Kai-shek at Cairo, Tehran, and Yalta, and at a cost and sheer physical strain that killed Roosevelt. But it brought peace to the world. The Soviet Union denounced its neutrality pact with Japan in 1945, and Japan was called upon to surrender or face complete destruction. She refused and was blockaded. On August 6, the first atomic bomb was dropped, and on the 14th, Japan surrendered. Stalin had demanded a strong attack from the West through France and Germany with war material to keep his armies in the field. In return for this, Russia had offered 15 million lives in the destruction of her best in her new industrial regions. After peace, she wanted this cordon sanitaire under her control so that the threat of Western invasion of Russia through the Baltic states Poland and the Balkans should be stalled forever. And she asked Western tools and machinery to rebuild her stricken economy after she had delivered the world from the threat of Adolf Hitler. Okay, does everybody understand what just happened here? You know, uh, make a long story short, the war ends in 1945. The war ends because the Soviet army had checked the, uh, the German army at the Battle of Stalingrad, one of the great battles of all time, artillery and all of that. And the German army running out of fuel, ironically had gone to Stalingrad on its way to the Caucasus to take over the oil fields of Russia. But once they're defeated at Stalingrad and then they're in retreat, they're running out of oil. That's the irony of it. And so 
the German army, the military doctrine had been always offense, I guess most armies, and had no theory of how to fight going backward. And the Soviet army known as the Red Army from Stalingrad West was on the heels of the Russian, of, of the German uh, Wehrmacht army. And then uh, Hitler and his staff begin to panic. What do we do? They, they're going at each, each other's throats. The big thing, they said, well, look, let's surrender to the West, to Eisenhower. We can get a better deal than if, if Stalin takes us over. Hitler knows that however it ends, uh, he's going to be tried and executed. You know, even the West would do that. Uh, so he commits suicide in his bunker. And soon after that, the Soviet army takes Berlin. Um, what's left of the Nazi regime um, uh, uh, calls for peace and, and so on. And um, Germany is divided between East and West. Stalin believed, um, because he could have, the Red Army could have driven and taken over all of Germany. And that would have been a hell of a prize, the, the whole industrial might of Germany. But he only he settled for the Eastern part, the less developed part, under the guise that a deal would be made, a peace deal where the West would help the Soviet Union rebuild from the war. Rather than that, and this is what we have to know going forward, the West led by the United States, we should say the United States because the West was pretty much destroyed uh, by you know, Europe by the war. The United States, rather than keep a gentleman's agreement that had been made between uh, uh, Roosevelt and Stalin, violates every deal, commits to rebuilding Western Europe uh, with the dollar, and all of that is the center of it. We can talk about that later. And then begins a cold war against the Soviet Union. The greatest betrayal that anybody could imagine. By this time, the Soviet Union had lost, as we know now, 26 million people. Its industry was destroyed. So now the Soviet Union, uh, and then under the leadership of Stalin, would be faced with rebuilding its economy while it's being sanctioned by the United States and the Western countries with all of this suffering, which it does. We could talk about that going forward. Roosevelt offered continued and increased supplies, pushed a long delay Western attack, did not oppose the eventual annexation of the Baltic states and in turn asked the entrance of Russia into the war against Japan. This was the story of these four world conferences, which stopped the war and sought to stop all war forever by eventual world organization and understanding. In March, 1945, Roosevelt reported to Congress on Yalta, quote, the structure of world peace cannot be the work of one man or of one party or one nation 
It cannot be just an American piece or a British piece or a Russian or a French or a Chinese piece. It cannot be a piece of a large nation or of small nations. It must be a piece which rests on the cooperative effort of the whole world. It cannot be what some people think, a structure of complete perfection at first, but it can be a piece and it will be a piece based on the sound and just principles of the Atlantic Charter, on the concept of the dignity of the human being and on the guarantees of tolerance and of of tolerance and freedom of religious worship. Tremendous further agreements were necessary and the implementation and refining of those agreed on in principle. Had Roosevelt lived, this had every chance of being accomplished, not without friction, but with faith, understanding and goodwill. But at Roosevelt's death, big business stepped in on both sides of the seas to stop the Soviet Union from restoring her economy, to retain the industry and land monopoly of the Baltic states and the Balkans, to keep the Soviets out of the Germany, which her blood had redeemed, to renew on a bitter scale the fight against communism. Here was built the foundations of a third world war. Everybody see it? This is very important. And this is why the dropping the atomic bombs on Japan in 1949 was so, was so important, not to defeat Japan, but to send a message to the Soviet Union that we have the ultimate genocidal weapon that we can use against you. Joseph C. Hirsch wrote in the Christian Science Monitor, quote, the Yalta Conference stands out as a conference of decision. The meetings which produced that Atlantic Charter and at Casablanca, Tehran, and Quebec were declarations of policy of intents. The meeting at Yalta was plainly dominated by a desire, willingness, and determination to reach solid decisions, end quote. Hopkins later said, quote, we really believed in our hearts that this was the dawn of the new day we had all been praying for and talking about for so many years. We were absolutely certain that we had won the first great victory of the peace. And by we, I mean all of us, the whole civilized human race. The Russians had proved that they could be reasonable and far-seeing, and there wasn't any doubt in the minds of the president or any of us that we could live with them and get along with them peacefully for as far into the future as any of us could imagine." End quote. So Franklin Delano Roosevelt died in the 63rd year of his life, in the 12th year of his reign as president of the United States. This was a man, a tall, handsome athlete who was stricken in his young manhood by a malady which would have sent a lesser person into bitter, hopeless old age. He was rich and never played, but worked tirelessly to keep wealth from suicide and poverty from despair. He was a gentleman, but became the target of gutter snipes who used the venal press to make lies true and to paint truth as a lie. He was hated by every jackal who dogged his life and desecrated his grave, beloved by every honest man. He saved the British Empire and the French Republic by firmly grasping the hand of Russia 
and letting her pull them in the United States out of defeat. He was a father of a family which from mother to grandchild posed him every problem of life which can try a man's heart. He neither whined nor whimpered, but could curse hell and heaven to summon right. And in all and with all, he kept his soul serene, met mornings with a smile, and talked to the hearts of, the country, of his countrymen as never president talked before. He died in harness, that harness of pounds of hard steel, under which he grimly bent every waking hour. His reach was not wide, but his grasp was mighty and gripping. He never faltered, but marched breast forward, never dreamed, though right were conquered, wrong would triumph. Held we fell to rise, are baffled to fight better, sleep to wake. Uh, you know, when, he's, when Du Bois is talking about he's shackled by the steel, you know, he, he was struck and stricken by polio um, in his 30s, uh, which was quite unusual, I, I think unusual, uh, especially for now, you don't even have polio no more. But um, uh, so he, all of his presidency was in a wheelchair. And um, a lot of people didn't really realize it because they, they shielded him, the photographers and so on, uh, from that. Uh, but what Du Bois ends with is that he felt that had Roosevelt not died in 1945 and had the Democratic Party not forced upon, Rose, upon Roosevelt, um, Harry Truman as his running mate, his vice presidential running mate in 1944. And had it been the um he ultimately ran on the Progressive Party ticket, Johan. Uh, uh, Wallace, Henry Wallace. Yeah, Henry Wallace. Yeah. Had Henry Wallace been the vice president on um, Roosevelt's ticket in 1944, Ro Henry Wallace is, is closer uh, to the left, a socialist like, like Hopkins, uh, and had Roosevelt died and then um, uh, Henry Wallace been there, the future of the world of the last part of the 20th century and even up to now could have been vastly different because the, um, the legal and political framework for cooperation with the Soviet Union rather than Cold War and an arms race uh, could have moved forward. But no, Harry Truman, uh, who was not a very, um, well-educated person, not a very smart person, did what the generals and the strategic planners said and built this Western pro-colonial, pro-imperial, pro-war regime uh, that we're still living with. Oh, just one more thing, just so everybody knows, what we're living with is the institutions and structures that were set up to fight and destroy communism. The American state in the wake of the unraveling of the British and French and Dutch and German empires after World War II, the American state rose to fill the vacuum. 
And to fill that vacuum meant that it would have to, that this nation would have to build the most fearsome military in human history. And that is why for decades, the United States would always not, rather than negotiate, threaten countries, threaten to bomb nations and people, as they said, back to the Stone Age. And uh, in, the, in the second part of the 20th century, Asia became the target and East Asia, China, Korea, Vietnam. Uh, and now, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to talk about, it's hard to think about. Um, uh, the only place where atomic weapons and chemical weapons of the types that we use, uh, the only times that this stuff has been used on this level has been in Asia. Uh, the only thing that comes a bit close to it was uh, in this last round of so-called wars against terror in Iraq, Syria, Libya, uh, Afghanistan. Uh, it only comes close. It doesn't, I mean, by, I mean, a long way from what, you know, dropping atomic bombs and what they did on the Korean Peninsula and what they did to Vietnam. But nonetheless, regime change wars at the end of the 20th century and into the 21st century flow out of the uh, wars to defeat, to defeat communism, which was really to maintain a global neo-colonial order dominated by the United States, the US military and the US dollar. And so, what we see today with high tech and the, you know, what they're doing with the Googles and the Facebooks and the Twitters and the others are doing to shut down discourse is not new. It's just new technology. It comes directly out of McCarthyism and the Cold War, just like the US foreign policy and all this mess in East Asia and their threats uh, in the Straits of Taiwan and the South China Sea and on and on. And going along with that, this war, this war preparation uh, is this shutdown of discourse where the people cannot know, cannot hear. I'm sorry to take too much time. This is a very important history. Uh, again, this book, interesting thing about this book, you learn so much about Russia and Asia, but you're learning a lot about American history too. Uh, and uh, his, I found his uh, description of Roosevelt to be very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, very. Ultimately, I would say mostly positive, but very sophisticated in how he approaches. He talks about, you know, basically a very a flawed man, a man who's coming in with a lot of disadvantages. He's a product of the American education system. And also his team, like his administration is full of different kinds of ideological trends. And then also, interestingly, the I also find it interesting the way he talks, uh, Du Bois talks about the geography, like the Southern Jim Crow politicians and political forces are basically like a drag on anything progressive that 
Roosevelt or the others want to do. Um, and yeah, I mean, but the fact that Roosevelt ultimately could come to a position of, you know, what supporting world peace, basically kind of supporting a popular front and uh, you know, him and these other progressive people like Harry Hopkins, Henry Wallace represented a different possibility of the US. And it is important, I think, to imagine uh, 20th century without a Cold War, where we may have had differences. The US and the Soviet Union may have had differences, but if they had, the US had not pushed for a confrontation as a way of resolving differences or as a tool of foreign, and violence as a tool of foreign policy, we would have lived a very, many millions of people would still be alive and many millions of billions of dollars which were wasted would not have been wasted on those things. And see, the only attempt to return to something like Roosevelt was Kennedy. And the ruling class tested him over Cuba, you know, over um, the invasion of Cuba, the Bay of Pigs, which he was not committed to. And when it failed, he said to hell with them. But the other was the missile crisis. It did not have to be that. And Kennedy didn't want it to be ratcheted up to threats of nuclear war and bombing uh, Cuba with nuclear weapons and stuff. But the Pentagon, Curtis LeMay and others said that we cannot allow communism to thrive 90 miles off our shores. And so Kennedy ultimately gives up his life. He's assassinated and it's, it's, it's about Cuba and it's about foreign policy and literally imperial retreat. And it does not occur again until Donald Trump. However you want to cut it, it is, and, and why are you laughing, Joe? <laughs> no, no, I'm just, you know, I'm just getting into it. <laughs> you can just imagine the way Du Bois would have written about Donald Trump, like the ironies, he would have just so beautifully brought it out. And, but his, he's always focused on what does this mean for, you know, the poor and working people it would have been really different than what um, people do today. Yeah. He had, yeah, he had a way of really getting to the essence of things, yeah. like, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, like, like you all, unlike myself, I went through the whole Cold War. This is all I know. All you guys know is the, quote, war against terrorism, you know? And you don't know massive armies, young men and probably now women being marched off to, you don't know anything about any of this. War is not a domestic issue in the sense of human lives. You don't know anybody that's been killed. You don't know anybody that's been driven. You don't know anybody that's in the army, I don't think, right? But on me, for example, not only did I know people in war, I was drafted to go to war twice, you know? So it's right, you know, it's like existential to me. And, um, your generation has to navigate this very thorny and difficult uh, path of identifying the enemy, the ruling you guys don't see. Because 
the ruling class has appropriated all the movement. Oh, you want to fight racism? Oh, we're in the vanguard of that. Oh, you're interested in women's rights? Oh, we're in the vanguard of it, but on their terms. So in terms of that, that conflict between a clear enemy, a, a war-making, exploiting enemy, and the people, you got it's a little more difficult for you all. And, and that's why it's so, uh, they can so arrogantly put out a movie that celebrates a, uh, uh, an FBI uh, snitch and say it's about the Panthers. You know, they can do all of these things because the actual enemy has found ways to disguise itself behind the very movements that should be fighting for the rights of the people. But this I get from Megan, but one movement they never support, and that's a movement for peace. So they never go there or, or never talk about uh, a war on poverty like Johnson tried to do. But, you know, but if you want identity questions, we got that. Yeah, as uh, Yvonne is always the one saying this, you have to know, you have to ask the right questions, especially who is the enemy. Oh, and, uh, I, you know, I was speaking with her this week. She was basically telling me that, um, you know, this generation is very confused about who the enemy is. And I was like, you're definitely right about that. We are very confused. And she says, it, you know, in, in, she misses the 60s because in the 60s, everyone, a lot of people at least were clear about that. Who is the enemy? Mm -hmm. But she was saying now the enemy is funding the supposed movements. The young activists are turning to the enemy. We're basically the woke elites and the deep state to fund their movements. So what do you expect? And we could expand that to say that the enemy is basically also producing the ideology, the right. books on anti-racism supposedly that are coming out. Uh, the films, the TV shows like Judas and the Black Messiah, which are coming out, the all knowledge of history is basically being controlled by them. And uh, of course, we won't even, you know, we won't get into really academia, but that, that as well, big tech, social media, uh, all of these things are controlled by them. And that is, that is the important question. I mean, that, that is the most important question. And uh, also, uh, reading this, I'm very impressed, as always, by Du Bois's, uh, you know, just his, his approach to understanding history. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, his, and as a, as a historian or a theorist of history also, like, what can we learn from him? And, you know, I'm reminded, like, they're often considered to be two approaches uh, generally to history. One is this kind of great man theory which comes from Thomas Carlyle and these English, 19th century English historians, that it's basically all of history just about great men and everything else is a footnote. Um, and then there's often been an attempt to go to hit the history of the masses, the history of the people. You could kind of fit the Marxist approach to history in that, that all history is class struggle. And then there's different attempts at social history, looking at the history of from below, as they say, how that shaped politics. But I think in a lot of ways, Du Bois is able to synthesize those two approaches. 
if you like. like. I mean, he obviously he has this broad classical education, and then he also studies Marxism and pretty much everything else which is available. And so he's able to talk about these, you could say, great men in some ways, Stalin, Roosevelt, uh, Truman, Harry Hopkins, etc. But he's able to place them in the social structure of society, the ideological apparatus, the education system, the struggle, and then obviously the very important the struggle of the masses. The basically, the, and he talks about himself also. Du Bois. The first half of this chapter was him talking about himself as an African American in the context of the struggle of the African American masses. So, just in this chapter, it's so deep. There's so much that you're getting at the great men of history, the leadership. You're getting at the masses. You're getting at the ideas. You're getting at the philosophy of history. You're getting into uh yeah it's so it's so rich so well integrated there's so and it's so it's so anti today's academia like this would never be probably i mean he wasn't able to publish it back then in the 50s but forget about today i don't think he could publish this anywhere in an academic journal they'd be like what are you doing you know uh so yeah but it's so it's so it's so important i mean there's so much so much here yeah, to bring to bring it back to Russia and America, I'm reading uh, James Douglas's book JFK and the Unspeakable, and I got to the part hey, where Vladimir, you're reading what um, JFK and the Unspeakable by James Douglas. Could you say James the title once you, you kind of break up to me? I couldn't hear you that well. Uh, the book is JFK and the Unspeakable. Oh, oh, oh JFK and okay. Sorry. Uh, yeah, it's been brought up before, but uh, I got to the part where um, where uh, JFK is being pushed by his uh, you know group of generals, and one of them says, you know, this would be you know not to not attack Cuba would be a greater cowardice than to not stop uh, Hitler after remilitarizing, and uh, you know they imply that it's that bad to not attack Cuba. And uh, you know James Douglas talked about listening to those audio tapes because those conversations were recorded, and he spends so much time on just the silence that JFK uh, you know allowed. Um, and and I also wanted to bring up the uh, you know on you know Social Security and the SEC these uh, institutions that uh, FDR created um, or helps create and how they're used today and. You know, it's always very unfortunate when I see some very elderly working in a hard job like a grocery store because I assume they're forced to uh, keep working because they're unable to retire. And uh, it's, it's, you know, that's the importance of Social Security. And I believe the person who introduced the idea of Social Security was inspired because he saw two elderly women searching in a dumpster for trash. And then, you know, in Russia and America, uh, you know, talked about the formation of the SEC to have transparency in financial dealings. And, uh, you know, just recently, the SEC has, and the uh, Justice Department has arrested uh, a man named McAfee, who created McAfee Antivirus. He's the CEO. And they arrested him for promoting cryptocurrency and profiting off of that. But if you look at Elon Musk's Twitter, he's done exactly the same thing. And the Justice Department is not going to arrest uh, Elon Musk for um, promoting Dogecoin or making money off of cryptocurrency just uh, based off of his reputation as someone in Silicon Valley. Um, 
So it's a very selective, uh, you know, way of uh, applying justice. And, you know, the SEC also during this GameStop affair, they really revealed that, you know, they don't care about financial transparency because they invested GameStop and all the shorting that was done during the GameStop, uh, you know, debacle, but they're not going to invest the shorting of stock before 9-11 and who did that. And it's not a question of was there, uh, you know, some poor knowledge or insider knowledge of 9-11 that caused stocks to be shorted. It's just have an investigation and get to a matter of truth about it and tell the American people. Um, you know, so I, those are all the things I'm thinking about reading this uh, and talking about JFK and FDR and the consequences of this history. And it also situates the peace movement, you know, talking about FDR and the betrayal into the Cold War because the peace movement emerges as uh, you know, colonized people all over the world uh, saying, we want the benefits that were promised to us. We want to be decolonized. We want to have the, for African-American people, we want to have the social benefits of the New Deal. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's how I, that's how I situate the peace movement now. Yeah, um, and uh, I'm just thinking what Magna was saying also about understanding Trump, how Du Bois would understand him. And I mean, that is a, such an important issue that some taken a firm stand on. But it's true also that uh, I think if Du Bois were alive, he would look into him and he would say like a person, like he would look at, okay, his background, a wealthy man, but a man who's never really been part of the cultural elite, a man who's in a lot of because of his his success on tv and stuff he kind of understood how to engage with the masses a man who was because he was also out of the cultural elite didn't share all their kind of didn't have that kind of ideological conformity who they thought was dumb but is actually kind of a critical thinker was reading on his own was understanding had a different view on political economy and global trade and globalization and uh then, you know, the ways in which this elite so much abandoned even the white working class mm -hmm. that it took a person like Trump, who was kind of an outsider to even understand their pain or go to these physically even go to these places. Um, and then, yeah, the person, a person who could see endless war because of his outsider status and the importance of imperial retreat and the changing world order. I mean, I think he would take seriously all those things. It wouldn't be this one dimensional dismissal which the left is doing and which others are doing and uh yeah we do we have to this point about imperial retreat about roosevelt kennedy and trump we have to really emphasize that we, we have to emphasize that framework of seeing how the global order and foreign policy is driving uh domestic politics and uh i mean just from a du bois is telling us to approach it just from a scientific way. You can't just say, because I, I personally like someone or dislike someone. And we're not, by saying this, we're not saying that, you know, Trump is perfect or anything. We are just like, he's not, he doesn't say Roosevelt's perfect. He acknowledges the problems and limitations, but you have to, that is part of doing scientific social science, scientific analysis, revolutionary science is, okay. is be, having the courage to, analyze and acknowledge those things clearly. That's the only way you can move forward. Otherwise you can't move forward. Uh, and then you'll just end up deferring to whatever is the, the ruling elites 
analysis and there and operating on that. Yeah, I think in a lot of our educations in America, um, like we talk about World War One, we talk about World War Two, we talk about, I guess, the events through the Cold War up till now, but there's never this deep analysis of like why um, these events had happened. Um, and I think a big reason is that when Du Bois is writing Russian America, he's very clear that he's talking about it from the standpoint of the masses of people. Um, and that's where he's coming from in talking about Russian America, um, where it's in this time when there's such rising tensions, um, but he's bringing clarity to it. Uh, something in talking about JFK, there was this one line that um, Du Bois had said, which is that the people of the United States were behind Roosevelt. Um, and that really stood out to me because um, that's also the perspective that Du Bois is looking at while he's analyzing history, which is where are the forces of people aligned to? Where are they? Um, and I think in terms of speaking about the world wars, you always see how um, Du Bois identifies both um, the areas in which there was so much potential, but also, but led actually to disappointment, but disappointment only in the sense that there was potential in the first place to have um, create an alternative. I know in previous discussions, we also talked about how, like, even if, you know, there are interests in America that um, or in the West, uh, but largely America, um, that are not for peace, um, the world was still changed because of the Soviet experiment. Um, and I think we can see that through how uh, Roosevelt, Terry Hopkins had um, made these connections, even though it was sort of, uh, might not have explicitly been like, oh, this is from uh, the Soviet Union. Um, but this is just a, such a deeper way to look at history so that those who um, are invested in um, peace can learn from in terms of analyzing um, the, I guess, the currents of our times. You know, apropos what you're saying, Alice, um, the whole question of is Xi Jinping's China the successor to the Soviet Union? Will China play a role in history going forward that the Soviet Union was destined to play except for you know, Nazism and then the Cold War that constrained it. But will China, through its economic and technological and political sophistication, objectively play that role? Which then means you know, that you know, Du Bois literally says that, um, that Roosevelt had a certain freedom of movement, mm -hmm. which really Trump doesn't have. I mean, it's very hard to compare the two because of the long mm -hmm. Cold War and the undoing of American politics, American social structure, where wealth is so concentrated, a cynical 
no good ruling elite. I mean, just a number of things. The country, in spite of the Great Depression of the 1930s, I would say was a healthier place than what we live in today. You know what I'm saying? And so a Roosevelt, you know, coming from wealth, coming, whatever all that means, whatever their moral um, predispositions were, um, Trump comes from like a, a, a whole different milieu. Uh, and I, I don't quite understand everything about him. And, and it's just a lot of questions that I have, but I do know that in terms of retreating from all out war on the world, uh, instead of going forward, that he was for retreating from that. That was the positive thing. Uh, but uh, apropos of um, Alice's uh, point, what was your point now, Alice? I wanted to respond to it. Just say it once again, forgive me. Um, there, I think there was a couple of points, so I'm not entirely sure, but I can repeat it um, in a sense that Du Bois came from the perspective of the masses of the people and so always identified like the potential um, to, in order to change the right, current situation right, of things. Right, right, mm -hmm. right, right. See this question of the people and the ruling class attempting to corrupt, demean, um, undermine the people. I mean, the whole concept of public education, uh, if it were on life support before the coronavirus, it pretty much, we'd have to say it's, it's gone unless it's fought for. So if you take public education and public meaning socializing, you know, uh, preparing people to live in society, preparing children to live in society. Well, you don't have that. And it's like we're saying that they can learn or they can be socialized on their phones, on their computers, and that uh, Twitter and Facebook and Amazon and Google and all of that will now perform the function that public education should. I say all that to say, um, and I don't know the, I mean, it's, it's a troubling thing. What are, the, what are the people capable of? I mean, there's been a beat down. There's been a beat down, we can't deny it. Or we're more violent, the society is more violent the society is more drug addicted. Uh, the society is more prone to suicide and drug overdose. The society is less educated. There's less space for, um, for discourse and debate and discussion where people wouldn't have to go to college, even graduate from high school. They could teach themselves. They could be a part of, uh, of rich collectives of discussion something like the free school, but more proliferate. But we don't have it. So the social structure is severely wounded. Um, okay, let me just give an example. And I, I hope nobody's listening from what went on last night. I was listening to a discussion on Judas and the, um, 
with Judas and the Black Messiah film. And what struck me is how incapable the participants were of critically discussing this film. They just didn't have it. They didn't know how to go about it. What, what do we make of the fact that Fred Hampton's son and the mother of his son, his former friend, or I wouldn't say, because he was engaged to somebody else, by the way. I mean, uh, are endorsing the film and yada, yada, yada. They could not contextualize. They did not understand the moment. They don't understand American society. None of this, although they're activists. But they could not critically discuss the film. And I don't think that's unusual. I don't think that's unusual. So a high level of pessimism, a high level of nihilism, a high level of defeatism, uh, there is no way out, uh, uh, and all of that type of thing. So it is, what is the state of the people? Now that's the state of the people under capitalism that is exploited and uh, turned on them in so many different ways over these years. But that's not what China looks like. That certainly that's not what Cuba looks like. That's not what North Korea looks like, you know? But this is what we look like. And so this, this, is, this is the problem I, I think we have to face as well. Uh, some comments, uh, comment from Jeremiah. He writes, reading Du Bois's interpretation of the New Deal is striking in that it follows a much fuller, more dynamic framework compared to contemporary theories of racial capitalism, which simplistically labels groups, individuals, and social forces into static categories. Applying cancel, i.e. applying cancel culture to say statements like, FDR was just a white supremacist and capitalist reformer. I agree that it would be fascinating to hear Du Bois interpret Trump. <laughs> no, it's true, actually. I think I've heard that before from people. <laughs> I haven't heard it uh, that before, but I, I can, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. I think he's getting really <laughs> getting at something. You could also add on that transphobe. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> wife beater i mean whatever you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> or right. or racist because he had racist attitudes or something like in the Kenny yeah he had he had that he included <laughs> that <laughs> uh no but uh it's true like well like doc was saying with that discussion or other things which you may see with which are which are using this framework of racial capitalism or some equivalent framework it's just very narrowing and uh you know, it, this is the thing. I, I feel like, okay, the New Deal, right? We can definitely identify limitations. I mean, Du Bois himself identifies limitations. But an idea which was able to get a mass base, which is able to mobilize people, and, and also a significant amount of Black people, I think, and, and, other, and, and others, and then you, which you can see its limitations, but you can also see its power. And then you compare that to racial capitalism, which an ordinary person has never heard of, knows nothing about, will never get really get behind. Uh, you, you have to weigh those things. You have to see which one do we have more to learn from. 
<laughs> which one has more had more significance in history? You know. Well, if you don't mind me saying, you know, you take these concepts. Uh, I mean, just all of the. I mean, these are good concepts for having a food fight or real ignorant argument or debate with an opponent but it does not help you understand history or the moment in which we live. Um, to call it racial capitalism, okay, it is capitalism, it is racism, but what have you told me that I don't already know? You know, um, what we call racism comes into the world with the transatlantic slave trade and capitalism. Okay, it's racial capitalism. But then do you use that concept to say, that, well, that cancels the whole white working class and most of the black working class because they're either white racist or they have compromised with white race. It's just, to me, it looks so much like the logic of identity politics. And uh, it's good for people who are angry and are not looking for a way out and have no relationship to the working class. If you're angry, racial capitalism, and everybody's, you know, but it doesn't lead anywhere. It's a sad thing. Uh, a comment by Alice Klein she says, there are a lot of mainstream news sources that cite FDR's policies as the origin of redlining. I think that's where the cancellation of him has come from. I don't know if you dog, maybe Magna might want to comment. That's a bit of a stretch. I well, I think I think from at least from what I've uh, read, uh, some of the like federal programs um, yeah. which were set up, like I guess Social Security and uh, maybe unemployment things like that, uh, they uh, didn't cover. Like for example, I think with Social Security and the workers' compensation stuff, I guess maybe Emily also knows because she's not and can add, but. Like they didn't cover like domestic workers and stuff like that, which are predominantly yeah. African-American. Yeah. And, but I think that was because in the Senate, these, uh, and the House of Representatives, these Southern Jim Crow politicians blocked, either put in those provisions or blocked it often from applying to, in different ways to black people. And that's also, and Du Bois is also saying that here, like the, yeah. the limitations of racial inequality and Jim Crow, it kind of empowered the most reactionary forces against the more progressive parts of the of the New Deal. Look, the civil rights movement. You know, um, uh, some uh, uh, Emily was talking about Coretta Scott King and and Martin Luther King. They grew up during the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. Like the overwhelming majority of Black people, they worshipped the New Deal and Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. And it was a short period before war breaks out less than a decade, maybe. And then it was all of these, you know, industry was against them the whole time. The civil rights movement from um, all of them for the most part were kids during the Great Depression. So they see the civil rights movement and then, the, then King's um, war, racism and poverty as a continuation and a further development of the New Deal. They actually did. Mm -hmm. And um, the civil rights organizations as the equivalent <clears throat> of the labor movement. Mm -hmm. And that's why it was very difficult 
for civil rights people like King and them to be anti-communist because they knew the role of the Communist Party during the great, you know, the labor organizing and the, and the New Deal period. So they saw themselves as radical reformers like Henry Hopkins and others in the period of the 50s and 60s in the best tradition of uh, Roosevelt uh, New Deal reformism. It is a good question, though, about the canceling of the New Deal because the FHA wouldn't insure loans. But I mean, like Doc is saying, this, the revolutionary struggle is to uh, go off of what was progressive and make it complete, you know, completing the anti-colonial revolution, completing the New Deal. And in fact, the New Deal is impoverished because it isn't giving democracy for everybody. And that's what Du Bois is always talking about. Make democracy real, make it for everybody. Um, I mean, and even going back to 1776 again, I mean, that was always, that was the way these revolutionaries conceived of it. I mean, James Lawson always talks about this, make the promises of equality um, and democracy real, not let's cancel it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like Martin Luther King said, I get this from Emily and Michelle, to move from the colonialism uh, of time to the empire of infinity. I'm trying to figure out who is this man to come up with something like that. But to see every possibility, if your epistemology and your ideology is grounded in the people, it's possible then the infinity, the empire of infinity, you know, uh, we don't have to be contextualized by this moment or the past, we can expand, we can, you know, and that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Otherwise you, you know, you commit suicide, either actual or social or cultural, or what they call menticide, just stop thinking. You know, I'm just going to drink beer or eat myself into oblivion. <laughs> Uh, I think what you're saying about uh, that racial capitalism and just uh, the kind of politics of just sloganeering but kind of self-righteous anger oh, yeah. it's 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 not but it's not rooting yourself in the masses that's the thing your epistemology like you're like oh the masses like the new deal but they shouldn't because it was white supremacist and it, they should be canceled but the masses like it liked it or like it still so what you're gonna do all oh, the masses don't understand that the American Revolution was a counter-revolution. Yeah. Well, but but so you're just you're going against the masses after a certain point and saying that the masses, you know, are are wrong or dumb or yeah that sort of thing. Um, another comment. Uh, this was about the going a little bit back to the gender stuff we were talking about. Shantanu Ghosh says there are currently 64 gender identities. It was 58 a few months ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess we're getting the most up-to-date statistics. <laughs> this where, rap. Where does she get her statistics? Uh, we can ask. I think it's a him, man. We can we can ask him to share oh. the stories here. Yeah. Uh, this rapid movement towards division is more dangerous than freeing because historically, this division is what Western capital Western imperialism capitalizes upon. 
it is becoming more and more apparent that the young people of today have prioritized this identity as their primary identity, which is counterproductive to any liberation movement. Cabral in Unity and Freedom makes it clear that, quote, the liberation movement must be capable of dis distinguishing within in the essential from the secondary, the positive from the negative, the progressive from the reactionary in order to characterize the key line of progressive definition of national culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, I think that's definitely true. I mean, we have to, that's what we're trying to do is distinguish between the progressive and reactionary that is promoted in the name that's of the thing. And all things aren't what they appear to be. You know, things that appear to be for you and advancing you and seem to be, they might not be that way. And that's where uh, on a wide scale, developing the skill and art of critical thinking. And I'm not talking about what you learn in your university classroom. This is another type of knowing, another type of knowledge. Um, and, um, you know, it's a way of thinking about the world. It's a worldview. Um, but if, ever, if, if all we can do, and this is why they concentrate. So when I say upon the young, not you all, we're talking about 12 year olds, you know, undermine any possibility of critically and skeptically looking at the world and get them uh, caught up in all of these movements from above, these quote revolutions from above, feminism as defined by the uh, top 10% of the population or 1% who happen to be at the most elite universities and they're gonna tell the working class uh, how to live and what to think and, and what is in their best interest. And then if the working class rebels against it, then you're a racist, you're a homophobe, you're a transphobe. They got a lot of names to call you now. And if you're not intimidated by all that, we're going to shut you down, put you in Facebook jail, Twitter prison, until you learn your lesson. <laughs> Oh, we, we got the source on the 64 gender identities, by the way. I'll sh share it with you after. What is the source? Uh, well, it's this website, healthline.com, but they have it broken down by letter, you know, like a, like a glossary here, encyclopedia. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> like, we may explore that. We may or may not explore that at a later free school. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. Uh, this uh, Baba Zaid says uh, solidarity and greetings from Malcolm X Commemoration Committee. In enjoying y'all, Cabral is the SHIT. The most important thing I can see to you as young people is to learn how to think critically for yourselves. Hey, Baba, glad to hear from you, man. And uh, we should announce, I'm sorry we didn't do it earlier, that Mumia's health is not good. Um, that it seems that he has 
COVID and congestive heart failure. Mm. Uh, but all of this can be treated. So, you know, I'm not, you know, saying he's, you know, near death or anything, but he is ill and he is in the hospital. Right. Yeah, it's important to keep people updated on that. Uh, definitely something we're concerned about the free school and uh, again yeah this pandemic is affecting so many people of course prisoners are being affected very badly by it and another another reason why we need to challenge the prison kind of industrial system as well but uh, yeah so I think we're we're kind of uh, finished with comments for now but uh, we're getting close to two o'clock. Time for lunch. Right? <laughs> <laughs> time to eat. But, yeah, we're getting to that time. So shall we wrap up for today? Yeah, I guess you know. I, I, I you know, I've been so um, uplifted by the session, especially um, that we were able to celebrate little early International Women's Day. And I think a lot of this discussion is going to go forward because uh, I, I don't think everybody knows we, we want to do something on Sheikh Rahman and Bangladesh, that great freedom struggle. Uh, and also this year uh, is the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, this is an occasion also for celebration. And, um, and I, think, I, think, I think there's a lot going forward that we'll have to do. And, and I guess we'll do, we'll get into the last chapter now of Russia and America. And this is a very important chapter. But uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, oh, I'm sorry, oh, excuse no, me. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, you know, I often get messages from people who are very uplifted by what we do in the free school. And, um, and not just people from Philadelphia, not just people your ages, by the way, um, who feel that at least somewhere, some people are thinking about our world and care about the future. And people appreciate that. People appreciate it. A lot of times people don't chat, you know, write in things and they don't, but they appreciate an honest attempt to understand the world. And uh, I just hope we continue with our work as we're doing it. Um, you know, I think my sense is that we get better and better as a group. Um, and this, I think, is a tribute to what we read, the sincerity with which we read it, and our commitment, our deep and heartfelt commitment to the truth. Uh, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very, also very glad that we 
were able to do International Women's Day. Thank you again to all the presenters. Yeah. Again, thank you to all the women comrades of the free school, elders and youth. And uh, we'll also keep everyone updated on the events for this year regarding Bangladesh, China and other things. And hopefully next week we'll continue with the next chapter of Russian America entitled The Witch Hunt. So we'll see everybody uh, next week at the same time. Bye-bye.